Maria supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah, there goes. The Blubbity Bar. Sending out good vibes. We'll do some good eating. We may take a historic train ride. We may go soak in the sacred springs. I'm going to bring, you know, I'm a percussionist from way back, so I'm going to be bringing some percussion instruments and we can have some, maybe a couple of late night around the bonfire wild drumming sessions. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. Uh, we're going to be chatting with uh, the one and only Randall Carlson a little bit later about our upcoming adventures in Colorado in May. With Let's, him? With him. With and a bunch of friends? A bunch of buddies, a bunch of great Americans. A bunch of listeners. A bunch of listeners, a bunch of smart people. Hopefully most of them from our show and not from a bunch of other shows. But hopefully, yeah. Kidding. Hopefully no, don't have to go. I'm just kidding. Looking. But no, great show. I think this is seventh time. Seventh time in Great America. So good a time as any to... Come and check it out and uh, sign up, become a member. Also, check out the website and come on the trip. It's going to be great. Graham C. Seti Dunlop's going to be there. Oh, C5 Dunlop yeah, is going to be there having close encounters of the fifth kind with Hopefully. you. Hopefully. Wouldn't that be cool? Close to, I mean, we're close to Dulcie, so I don't know if they're close encounters of the underground kind. Or... Well, if nothing else... They're going to have a C5 with Graham Dunlop. I got to get practicing on how to. You better work those calves out. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm better before. I got to do that fast before 75 people see my calves. Yeah. That'll be it. The the whole mythos could be gone. Yeah. Yeah, You got to start jacking them up. No more skipping lag day. I don't even do lag day. You don't? Really? You better get on it. Your fucking calves are legendary, and now they're just going to be people. Are be like, how do I it. do? How do I do that? How do I build up? Should I just do more yoga, maybe for a little while, just to tone them up a little bit? Or I don't know. Just should saying. I should I bulk them or ta- or or what? Do you, what's the opposite of bulking? Cutting. Don't bulk them up. Bulk them up. Then cut and them then up cut. like the last bulk couple of days before. Like, just like do like so a just three do day like, fast. Just do full calf <laughs> bulking for like two months, and then yeah. just. And then fast for like a week. Just get it all like, like veiny, <laughs> veiny. There you go. You got it. It's perfect. You got it. All right. Enough about us. Enough about your calves specifically. Calves. Is it a, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? I, I don't know. Just calves. It's plural. I think it's calves, plural, if it's a baby cow. You think it's not a leg muscle. I think it's a different cow. I gotta look that up now. <laughs> you could be right. Actually, I was thinking you could be right. Actually. It might always be calf. Like the muscle might be C A L V E all the time. <coughs> but who knows? Well, you gotta better hit the tannin booth too. <laughs> Why? Tan up them calves. Oh, for the t- Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's calves. Oh, calves. Oh, there's a whole grammar.com. Calves versus calves. Oh, boy. So we got a debate. Is it a calf muscle or a calf muscle? Do you have, how do you spell calf muscle? 
How do you get C-A-E. big calves fast? <laughs> how do you how do you get do big calves seated, fast? Do seated calf raises. This movement targets the soleus calf muscle, calf muscle. Do standing calf raises. Do leg press calf raises, also known as the donkey raise. <laughs> do jump squats, do box jumps, jump rope. There you go, just jump rope like a motherfucker. You could even jump rope here in the studio in that space. So calves the is the plural. Jump rope. <laughs> calves is the, from jumping rope's hard, man. I, I know. I could jump rope I, for about 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, back in the day, jumping rope, like a mother playing double dutch at recess when I was a kid. Really? And I was like, my kids pull out the jump rope. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll show you how to jump rope. Jump like 10 times. Tired out. It's a good workout, actually. Calves is the standard plural of calf in all its senses. Below the gluteus maximus muscle is the buttocks or over the internal gamelius muscle in the calves. Calves. So that that's the sentence they have to provide, all that <laughs> other stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to know, anyway. Well, I gave you, yeah, at least you found some exercises. That's right. Okay. You can try some of those out. Get on it. Yeah. Better start now. Get out a pen and paper and write this you down. Head, head over and get the parcel. We should, uh, oh, I got to go get the parcel. I got to get asking show. me to get up and go get it. Okay, yeah. hang on. I'll get, I'll get, I'll, it's okay. I'll get. So, Rand, we got to talk. There's a great chat with Randall about other stuff besides the cabin, too. Oh, yeah. It's a, yeah. Most people don't even listen to the intro, bro. Alberta. Next line. Canada. Next line. T2T space 5H7. That's the EO box. Why don't you send Darren some dirty socks? Cause he's got a dirty sock fetish. Why don't you send Graham some gold bullion? Cause he's got a gold bullion fetish. Send him some gold. Send Send him some gold. gold. Send him some gold in the PO box. So you know what this is? Do I get to guess what it is? Sure. Because yeah, it came guess. in the mail, a big box. I had to get it from the yeah, P.O. box. Like, yes. It's a bong. No. Because no. I don't really want a bong showing in the studio, and that's probably what it is. I left the no. bong in the kitchen. There hasn't been a bong in the studio once. Dirty socks. Ooh, honey. Is it ghee? I bet you it's ghee. Think. I bet you it's honey. Honey. Is it honey? Really? Too bad. Manitoban honey. honey. Oh, that's great. I'll be back on honey in no time because I'm just going to leave these sitting here. So this is why you want dirty socks? You know what? This is an actual dirty sock. Because I already went in it. in the bottom of it. I got another. You didn't sneak your I got the supplies out of it already before dinner. You went into the box? Yeah. Smell it. It's a dirty sock. Is that gross? Here. Darren and Graham. Oh, I can't read it till you open it. It's from James. James in Manitoba. James in Manitoba. Also known as race person in the oh, chat. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I just saw him today. Did you? In there. He might be watching right now. Do you have a knife on you? Uh, I have a gun. Don't say that. We're gonna get kicked off of YouTube. Jesus, that's what you. It's that's a what's fake gonna gun. Do right replica. Now. Replica. 
It's a replica. This is fun. We're unboxing. I build these. Some people like make millions off yeah. of unboxing stuff. People yeah. just send gifts to the they don't do to the PO box, <laughs> and we'll unbox it. Oh, it smells. <laughs> it smells. It's a it's a fucking skull or something. Yeah. You no, know, you open it now. <laughs> I don't want it. You're the native guy. You're probably no, no. just. It's addressed to you. It's a skeleton, I think. Oh, oh, that's <laughs> fucking gross, man. Here, look at that. It's disgusting. It's a half of a skull. And it smells. It's all dirty. Did you know I had a, a freak out with, as a kid with those? One of those stuck in the fence? No. Did you know that? No. I was traumatized. I saw a skeleton of a cow or a bull stuck in the middle of a barbed wire fence. <laughs> Maybe it could, does kind of stink, doesn't it? Yeah, man. Oh my god, I'm surprised <laughs> it made it here in the mail. Yeah. So thanks, James. <laughs> it looks like is it some sort of like dared and ground some sort of occult symbolism there or something with the horns? Is that like reminds me of Baphomet or something? Darren and Graham, if the skull doesn't fit into the new space, oh, no hard feelings got some on Febreze. <laughs> it's a good thing most people don't listen to the intro. If the skull doesn't fit into the new space, no hard feelings on my part. Can't speak for Fritz. Make sure you investigate that old sock before tossing it. Honey from bees I scooped up with my own hands. An amazing experience. The best honey I have tasted. Internet can help you liquefy it again. Just some tokens of my appreciation. Much love, good vibes, and gratitude. James. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. I mean, maybe we'll cut the horns off or something. Or maybe... I was thinking we could put it on top of the sea can. It's kind of got like half its, half its uh, teeth. I was thinking we could put it on top of the sea can. We should, we could, like a scarecrow. Maybe we can do something with it in the studio. It'd be nice to have it somewhere, but we gotta like make it smell like shellac it or something. Yeah. Or maybe I cut the, it. Can they and, just? Can you just cut the horns can off? You take and it home it? and shellac it. No, we'll do it in the back here, in the back space. <laughs> you look so creeped out. <laughs> it's pretty creepy, man. I had a fucking bad experience when I was like four or five, probably. In the back 40. <laughs> All right, what do you got, buddy? Well, I got a... Oh, by the way, the dirty stock supplies were top-notch. I got a... Oh, yeah? I got, a yeah, you seemed a bit... Shatter. Yeah, you seemed a bit fucking stoned today. Yeah. Yeah. What's that supposed to be? Tonight. Not that I just noticed a difference, so obviously right. it was good, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not me noticing it. Me, I noticed it on you, I meant. So people know. One hot man says we should make a bong out of it. Oh, we should put it on the hood of the Knight Rider. For the trip down to CAC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Road trip in the crown and Fritz. So this is from Bryce. I got to apologize to Bryce right off the bat. I got this uh, email. I think I got today. I got today. Thanks for reading the email and checking out the photo. 
And this is so he's he's thanking me for way back when I read his email on the show. He's like, even though you dated me thirty years older, I'm thirty two and wasn't in the fourth grade in nineteen sixty six. And he sends me a timestamp of the of when I said that. He says blue holes all over the, my story. Ha ha ha. So he's actually born in nineteen, or he's actually that age. I went back. I was just reading through his. <laughs> it says nineteen ninety six. I said sixty six. I guess so. So you're Bryce. older, so you can have the 64 one. Sorry, Bryce. We're getting quite the coin collection. Oh, there's going. coins in the in the sock. Well, I nice. think there's Sasquatches. Oh, these are dollars, are like those, actual dollars. No, those are Indians. Anyways, let me get back to his email. So he's like, well, I just listened to a recent episode about vaccines and such. You mentioned Vancouver. He's calling me out of another for another mistake here, too. That's Vancouver, Washington for the measles outbreak. Not Vancouver, Canada. People here are losing their minds, so I decide to help them out by offering a measles car wash on the off-ramp. I put on a Tyvek suit and headed out to dance the night away, poking fun at the hysteria. Cops get called, and I file a public records request for the 911 call. What I hear is more hysteria about a gas station manager worried that I'll rob the store across the street that I don't match the description of a recent local murder suspect. Why, oh, why? I took the warnings, and I'm just trying to help the public, help protect the public from unknowingly transporting the disease around via car. So he's dressed in, <laughs> in a pink hat with a, with a gas mask and a big mm. white suit. <laughs> he sent me a YouTube video. He says, it's unreal here. The hospitals have security guards at the doors rejecting entry of children and risk and at-risk individuals. Schools are forcing staff to become current on all immunizations or take two weeks off. If the records are missing, they force the employees to undergo it all again. Even though, here's the video of my freeway encounter with the cops. Two weeks off don't sound bad. Christ. Well, what do you... Here's my problem. Whenever I go to the Canadian border, they hassle me. He sounds and Canadian. It seems to be getting worse and worse. From Canada right now. Yeah, but they're all connected, man. It's the Queen. Can't be too safe. Anyways, I won't play the whole video because I haven't watched it yet. So it might be a lot of music and him dancing around. Anyways, it's pretty cool. Robbery suspect spreads measles and and measles spreads measles fear and meets cops. Ah. So, anyways, thanks. Excellent for the, title. Yeah. What else you got? Oh, I think we just got a note from race person in the chats. Oh, what's it say? I think it was to me personally. <laughs> Are you gonna read it? This is a warning. Don't text me. Oh, where did it go? It disappeared. Don't text Graham anything or assume it will be read on the air. Seems like such a nice guy. Sorry to resurface your skull-based trauma, Graham. Or perhaps it will turn out to be well-timed. Is that it? Yeah. Maybe it will turn out to be well-timed. Maybe. Maybe you just got over your fear of skulls. That's right. Or maybe My bono. you're not going to sleep for fucking a week. <laughs> Could go either way. Right? I thought I told a story or something about it. No. 
No, he sent the message and asked if I wanted it. If we wanted it, sent a picture of it. Nice. I was like, yeah, send it to Graham. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, what else you got, buddy? Well, I got, go another, um, I got another. I got another email here from somebody about uh, that listens to Randall a lot on our show, and I thought I would read it because I just got it at nine thirty-three tonight. Nice. Like literally a half hour ago. Whoops. And now another edition of the Grime American Goodies by the people. So anyways, this is from Mark, and I figured it's appropriate because he's only seen our, our uh, episodes with Randall, but he'll be checking out more of our episodes for sure. So this is a trip report. I should have uh, mentioned that. You know what's fucked up is I hit the trip report oh, jingle really first weird. and stopped it. Oh, wow. That was the one that... Oh, yeah, that's right. Nice. American trip report. No, I, I still like that. I, I like that too. So we're not advocating drug use or anything like that, uh, but we're you know we do like I to talk to about people. Mushroom use, you know what I mean. But I mean we don't want to you know it's not like we're supporting we're people supporting to go out it. and try this stuff. I mean, but people send in their stories and it's good to talk about it every once in a while. That's right. That reminds me, me and friend of the show Bill, here in the next week or so we're going to get together and do. We both done mushrooms recently, and uh, we're going to do a nice little roundup, maybe a little. Semi guide to doing mushrooms in oh, our experience, wow. you, 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 as well as you feel uh, yourselves pro enough to guide people along well, this journey. No, not pro, but enough to make sure you don't have a freak out. <laughs> <laughs> make sure you have the stuff to feel safe, like yeah. a blanket. You know, yeah. It's always good to have a blanket if you're going to be tripping out. Really? Yeah, I find very cozy. Wow. Yeah. Make you feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You can check if you peed your pants without anyone telling. Yeah, huh. Last time was a lot of caps. Anyhow, check out the black budget for that. Right on. Get to it. Looking forward to that. Are so you? from age 16 to 20, I experimented quite a bit with psychedelics, particularly with an LSD analog called DOI. You ever heard of that? I think it's oh, I, uh, 2,5-dimethoxy-4-iodamphetamine. My dad knew the manufacturer and the sheets were double dipped, so they were quite potent. I had one trip where I lived the whole week of my life while living semi-conscious on the couch for around three hours. That's weird when that happens. Time, the time thing. Yes, I've witnessed this myself <laughs> from time to time. I had another trip where I laid in my room listening to trance music while watching a projection or light show of what I could only describe as an intergalactic arms race slash war that took place over thousands of years. And fast forward from the perspective of floating in space a few thousand light years from the edge of the galaxy. <clears throat> That's that stuff Randall was talking about, galaxy, you know, galaxies affecting us. Intergalactic arms races affecting us. I watched Interstellar again the other day when I was coming down off the mushrooms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The most interesting phenomena, however, was incredibly heightened senses. This is what Darren has seen too. The first time we did a podcast with you on mushrooms, Darren, you what? could sense somebody coming down the stairs. I even tested this semi-scientifically with a friend. He could be a hundred meters away around a corner and he would whisper a phrase very quietly and I would hear it clearly as if I was right next to him. It drastically increased my hearing abilities temporarily. 
Why are you giggling? Just thinking about you opening the skull. <laughs> also, this didn't happen to me, but a female friend took some and we went for a walk around the neighborhood. She reported seeing auras around everything, electric lights everywhere. She said it was like she was seeing into another dimension. Happy to provide more information if you're interested. Yes, Mark, please do. I'd love to hear more about the heightened senses and your semi-scientific work with psychedelics. Absolutely. You could get all stoned up and go on the uh, Cat in the Box podcast and practice your psychedelic work. That's right. I hope you like this episode with Randall, and I hope you check out all our other free back episodes, all 300 and something of them. 331 episodes in the back catalog currently. At a buck a show, you know where you sit. So I got some, I got some feedback, and I got some UFO quote and some. Uh, what kind of feedback? Deep state quotes and stuff too. What sort of feedback? Feedback oh, that feedback. leads into supporting the show. Yeah, exactly. All right. Do that now. Go for it. Okay, let's see here. Where is it? I could tear up some social media too, but we could save that. Yeah, let's save that one maybe. Alex Jones has been trending on Twitter for nine hours and he's kicked off at Twitter. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hey. Huh. Okay, something's happened. So you have to just stall for a second while I find this because something's wrong with the. Uh... Here it is. <clears throat> What was I looking for again? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> it's that short-term memory thing again. Okay. So I just got to find my spot here. Sorry about the dead airspace here. Oh, yeah, the social media. It's okay. You reminded me. With your dead air bullshit. Dead air Dunlop. That's what we'll call you. All right. I've been silent on this for some time. First, going to get this off my chest right here. You definitely have some asshole listeners. They invest so much of their energy to ridicule. Which hurts to listen to because they're investing pure, raw energy into negative returns. I just think of our conditioned minds have difficulty cognizing that our energies vested always reap abundance. Where we give our attention and focus is what comes back in droves. Whether that abundance is struggle, scarcity, or source, we make those decisions. Speaking only for myself and experience here, and my experience here. I don't know. I don't find we have too many negative, negative, uh, <clears throat> negative people. Ridicule, I don't think so. but we he try just not might. To as he, a rule. Yeah, but he just, I think he just might mean people don't support the show or something. Those motherfuckers. Well, you no, uh, you can be negative once in a while. Yeah, totally. You're pretty negative, yeah. Nancy. Really? Yeah, a little bit. At the, in the show or well, outside the show? Yeah, it creeps in. Yeah, it creeps, it in. creeps yeah. in. You're all triggered. Yeah, I was around. thinking about that as I was reading that. I was like, yeah, yeah I got to get out of that state. That. I began supporting you a while back because I was led to. Intuitively led by an assurance... And this is in quotes. Support here. Spend his money on blow. Support here shifts economic understandings in the morphic field. This is a worthy contribution which will return to you. 
Brother, I was homeless and struggling, but made the leap. The weeks following, I noticed a clear shift in my mental space. No matter what went wrong, I had this thing I was doing, contributing where it was appreciated. Why not? Your show, sh your show saved me from being overcritical of my own incessant mystical experiences. He says overly critical. <clears throat> so I give because it is a mutual rewarding exchange of energy. I don't mind handing you my life units when my life is so incredibly enhanced and my understandings so expanded. Recently, I was working an outside job restoring some streetlights to operable use. I'm a service technician. I was intuitively guided. No, I was intuitively urged to download three random podcasts. I didn't want to, but did. Had it not been for your show, synchros, and guests, I would have dismissed this urging. Just days before this, I was feeling afraid because, medically, I'm losing my sight. So I yelled at the air. Been doing this a lot. Do my eyes heal, restore, or do I go blind? The response I was given didn't fit any psychological scaffolding I had. It said, even if your physical body doesn't restore, your clarity and sight will be fully restored better than you've known. I replied with, well, you're going to have to show me because I don't know that this can be true. The last podcast I downloaded was an interview with Dr. Jacob Lieberman, who is an optometrist that had his eyes heal exactly how intuition said mine would. In brackets, he says, get him on your show. When it comes to support, I encourage listeners to do so selfishly and in a way that is the least committal as possible, $1 or $3 life units, because the game we are in is all about attention. The cipher, the key, the cheat code is an action-infused intention. Don't be ashamed of incremental giving. The old scripture encourage, don't despise small beginnings. This is the distilled understanding I have come to. If it is true at all, and on any level, then committing to contribute out of sheer curiosity to a $1.11 or a $3.33 a month support is what inspires higher order to engage the new kid on the playground. And this recess kicks ass. It's fun. My sincerest hope is that your listenership will give themselves the option to experience the serendipitous shifts I've had for two years now. It is beyond worth the price as it gently directs the supporter's attention towards actualizing a new model of change, of exchange. A little really goes a long way, and Grimerica is a place that celebrates and appreciates your participation. I just don't see how it, there's a loss in any part of this equation. I've held off on this rant for a year. I want to flesh it out, test a theory. For me... It has quoted the inner cynic with so many evidences. I was hopelessly lost when I began this journey with Grimerica two years ago. The action I took was behaved as a homing beacon for unachievable hopes, dreams, and desires to locate this fucked up man. This fuck up of a man. I count myself so fucking fortunate to be a Grimerican and contribute to the inevitable success coming your way. For the non-contributors, just step through the looking glass for 18 months at the smallest reoccurring donation you can stomach. Saturate it with real intention, because it calls you home and will lead you places once thought unreachable. Come and play. Use the cheat codes. 
It's just an experiment in consciousness, and you can always cancel. That's all I got. Thank you. Graham and Darren for deciding to stick with a thing that has forever altered mine and my children's path to ones led by light instead of drowning in confusion. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Capital V. Thank you. <clears throat> wow. That's yeah. pretty, pretty profound. Yeah, it's a very nice email. Very humbling. Yeah. I think that our lazy ramblings affect people a lot deeply. <laughs> Thanks, Vance. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. So, see? See, Darren's speechless. What I mean, he said. Geez, he just, support I mean, the show. There's a bit of a synchronicity, too. I mean, there's even a synch deep synchronicity in buried that. The three random podcasts, the, the eye doctor that healed his sight after he asked that. I mean, this this is just nonstop stories like this of yeah. people. And it all and starts with supporting the show. Like we were just talking about on another podcast earlier tonight about the malleability of reality and how it's so fluid, right? This is another example of it. Yeah, man. It's fucked up. In it's fucked good, up in a good way. And uh, check it out. Like he says, I mean, if you did it for 18 months at a buck a month, it costs you 18 bucks to try out his, try out the theory. Yep. See if it works. Small beginnings, yeah. 18 months. Yep. Try it out. If y'all did that, we could try out, we could do all sorts of fun stuff around here. Who knows? But we'll figure it out one day. No, we, can get, we can even get to two shows, two shows a week. I mean, there's so yeah. many interesting guests we could talk to. Like oh. we have a back list of, of guests. That's impossible to even, there's hundreds of It just of keeps people. getting longer. Just we ridiculous. could do two, three shows a week. I never thought there's all these people doing interesting research that want to talk to people out there. Like before I started doing this, it's unbelievable how it's expanded. Yeah. So that's why you gotta jump on board, support the show, help us grow, help us get to the point where we can take this thing to the next level. We're getting there. We got the studio. We got the space. We're growing. Things are going in the right direction. Head over to grimerica.ca slash support today. Become part of the team, part of the community, part of the show. And uh, yeah, take the leap. I think it's time, you know, 2019, time to sign up, time to hit 2-3%. America.ca slash support for the PayPal gang. America.ca slash Stripe for the Stripe gang. America.ca slash Patreon for the rest of you. And uh, I mean, if you want to do one-time donations, you can do that at paypal.me slash America. You can stash cash in books and send it to the P.O. box. We don't give a fuck. Whatever way you can help the show, help the show, because the future of independent media like us is in your hands. Unless you want to go the advertiser route, we could do that. We'd rather not do that. No, no one's Sounds not. terrible. We could start cutting these fucking shows. And someone's saying, cash the checks we said he sent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we will. I can't. Yeah, I will. So, cash the yeah, checks. Sorry. <laughs> well, some of them are post-dated, so I can't. Well, cash the ones that yeah, are post-dated. Yeah, 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 that would be crazy if I had a check out there and I'm like waiting for it to get cashed. Uh, America.ca slash support. There you go. Send checks to the P.O. box. Thanks, Brian in the hat. There you go. Become a supporter. I think we're up to like, uh, I think with all the one times and the subscriptions over the five years added up, we're up to like 700 names for the wall. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So about 400 to go. Preferably those will be new monthly subscribers as opposed to one-time donations. One-time donations are fantastic. Don't get us wrong. It's a little easier to budget the bills and everything else on monthly subscriptions, though. But, hey, we'll take what we can get at this point because we're getting less than 1 in 100 people to donate. So we're getting about a half to three-quarters of a person out of every 100 people that download the show to donate. 
just criminal. Uh, you guys can do better than that. Check out the show notes as well. There's a bunch of stuff in there. Graham does a ton of time on the notes. There's a bunch of links in there. There's a notes for the CAC stuff's in there. The newsletter stuff's in there. The <clears throat> All the music you hear in the show. Contact, email, email contact information for stories and sightings and feedback. There's the voicemail number, the one four zero three seven zero two six zero eight three number. And there's also links to all the social media and all that, like you said. And <clears throat> you know what would be a good thing as well? Yeah, let's go to the voicemail now. And one saved message. Main menu to review. First saved message. Message marked urgent. End of message. <laughs> to erase this message, press seven. Darren just gets a message giggle erased. out of that. Gets a End of messages. Main menu. Hopefully, there's a, hopefully that was a joke. I assume it was a joke. Why do you get a giggle out every time you play? I don't know. Like, help. <laughs> urgent I, message. I beep. Think, That's it. No, it says help. No. Yeah. No, it's just a beep. No, it says no, help. No, there was no. It no, said no. help. It was just to get somebody hanging up. It was the beep oh, of somebody hanging up. I thought it was help. No, I don't <laughs> oh. think so. I deleted it now, so uh. we'll never fucking know. So the other thing I was going to mention is uh, there's all these little things you can do to help too, like iTunes review, or you can go on the YouTube channel, subscribe to our channel, and uh, like like the, the things and put the uh, the notifications on and all that. I mean, that's yeah. all little things. Subscribe that help. on YouTube helps big time. Uh, no, I think great review on iTunes helps big yeah. time, and share the shit out of it. Yeah, that's it. Do all that shit seriously. Be part of the team. Part of the solution. Anything else? Did you quote? I like to get out the quotes. Oh, yeah. Fucking quotes. It's the middle of the night. Not the quotes. Darren and Graham are going deep. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. Words to ponder and critique. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. Where are we going, UFO Save or it. Charlie Save Robinson? UFO. Not Charlie Robinson. Oh, yeah. Certainly when I socialize with my RAF colleagues, that's the Royal Air Force. Thanks, tips. <laughs> I would find that they were a little bit more receptive to the idea of UFOs. And by that, I mean perhaps even an extraterrestrial explanation for this than you might have supposed. One of the reasons for that was that so many RAF pilots have actually seen things themselves. Many of them have never made an official report. I had one chap tell me that he had seen something over the North Sea. I asked him why he hadn't reported it, and he said, I don't want to be known as a flying saucer Fred for the rest of my career. And that was our buddy Nick Pope, headed, Nick Pope, been headed, on the up, show. headed up the UFO desk at the Air Secretariat 2-A British Ministry of Defense from... 1991 to 1994. And was also on the Grand show before we started numbering the shows. Oh, was it that far back? I can't believe that. June 29th, <clears throat> 2014. Okay. Here's a, here's a quote for Darren to guess. It's from the octopus of global control. Oh, am I shooting about 50%? Yeah. Uh, a little better than that, I think. I think, I think they're 60, two for three two, so far. Yes. Or two for four, maybe. I can't remember. Let's go two for three. By Charlie Robinson. The individual is. Friend of the show, Charlie Robinson. 
The individual is handicapped by coming face-to-face with a conspiracy so monstrous he cannot believe it exists. The American mind simply has not come to a realization of the evil which has been introduced into our midst. It rejects even the assumption that human creatures could espouse a philosophy which, which must ultimately destroy all that is good and decent. That's got to be, uh, is that the dude we had on the show? No. Uh, Federer's a pretty famous guy now. Who? That quote is a famous guy. Yeah, who is it? He was a director of the FBI. Oh, uh, Hoover? Yeah. yeah. J. Edgar Hoover. That's from the, uh, the first director, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Elks Magazine, 1956. Nice. Yeah. I like it. Is he dead now? I think so. Hmm, probably must be. He might. He'd be commenting on shit right now if he wasn't dead. And this one's from our, our fairly recent guest, Mark Gober, from an up end to upside down thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications of everyday life. I never like to get into debates with skeptics, because if you didn't believe that remote viewing was real, you hadn't done your homework. English Swan. No, that was Major General Edmund R. Thompson, Army Assistant Chief of the Staff for Intelligence, 1977 to 1981, and a Deputy Director for Management and Operations, DIA, 1982 to 84. Bingo, bango, 1984 is a motherfucker. That's here. It all comes down. The other day was a day that was as many days after 1984 as it was before 1984 that uh, the book was written the book was written written right wow uh, probably wow. read as well that was a few weeks ago nothing crazy happened so anywho that's all I got <clears throat> tired it's late long night of podcasting we just finished interviewing this great chat with Ronald Carlson you guys should enjoy it anything else no that's about it enjoy the chat one and only Randall Carlson for you tonight we've got uh, everyone's favorite guest the renegade scholar himself randall carlson is back we're going to talk about uh, our upcoming trip in may for the most part for 10 days at pagosa springs colorado where we're going to meet with uh, randall down there and a bunch of people from the show a bunch of listeners and uh, we're going to get into some of the things we're going to do during those three 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 to four day visits down there so uh, welcome back again randall thanks for uh, spending some time to chat with us about this 
Well, thanks for having me back, Graham. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. So, uh, yeah, where do you want to start this off with? I mean, I, I've been uh, in the in the Zoom a couple times where you guys are talking about what you what you plan on doing. I mean, I'm realizing that there's lots to do in Colorado where we're going to be where we're going to be staying at the cabin, and then we can also leave some time open for some of the new stuff that uh, that is happening at like Sacred Geometry International and some of the new news that's coming out. I feel like I'm seeing stuff every every week or two here that has to do with your research and kind of you know, vindicating it. So we can maybe save some time for that as well. Sure. I'm wide open. Whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Well, um, let's, let's start with the, the trip then and what you, uh, what you kind of envision there for a couple, couple, couple of your day trips. Well, as you said, the, the lodge that, um, is it Alan is, who has yeah. actually yeah. procured that? Alan Neal has procured that for us. Yep. Elk Thank Lake you, Lodge. Yep. Yep. Elk Lake Lodge. Yeah, yeah, okay, thanks. Elk Lake Lodge. Yeah, it's just north of Pagosa Springs, which is in southern Colorado. And um, a lot of interesting things to do and see around there. So um, the focus of the field trips would be both archaeological and geological. Right. So we would, you see, we're right there uh, just south of us. Uh, it would be the northern extent of the Chacoan culture, and we would be visiting some of their um, places of habitation, um, some of their sacred locations, some of their um, observatories, like Chimney Rock, which would be very close to where we would be staying, is uh, two large pinnacle rocks that were used as uh, sighting um for sighting uh, astronomical motion, and we would go be visiting that place and taking a, a, a day trip up to see um, not only a very unique geological feature, but how it was incorporated into their system of archaeoastronomy and how they used it as uh, a way of mapping the heavens. Hmm. And there is a ridge there with um, a kiva on it, and a, what had been at one point a signal tower. And the signal tower would be a place where um, the people could build a large bonfire that could be seen from a far distance away. And where we would be at would be the, the northern extent of a whole roughly ten or 12,000 square mile in extent infrastructure that was built by these people between probably... I would say 2,500 years ago down to about 800 years ago. Um, and it consists of a whole series of, of um, structures such as kivas and <clears throat> complexes of, um, along with outliers and signal towers and straight roadways. And we won't have a chance to get fully down into um, the, the extent of it, but we will be seeing some of the northern rim of it there at, at Chimney Rock and at Mesa Verde. So um, that would be a big part of what we're doing. Now, Mesa Verde is one of the most extensive collections of cliff dwellings in North, probably is the most extensive collection of cliff dwellings in North America. Right. That's and the one we is, see all the pictures of all the time. People show yeah. the little huts and yeah. all that in there. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. So, oh, that'll uh, be fun to check yeah, out. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
that would be and so yeah canyon of the ancients is near there so i think that would be on the list um number of other things that we could do just not only so i i like to break things up when we we do these uh excursions and mm-hmm. have not only the research and the and the the quest for for interesting sites but also to do things that are fun um such as uh Maybe we could go on, spend a day on the, uh, riding up the uh, San Juan River Valley on the um, Durango, or Animus, excuse me, the Animus River Valley on the Durango-Silverton Railroad, which goes up and you can see areas from there that you can't see anywhere else unless you hike in. Um, It's a very unique geological channel up there that... uh, conveyed huge amounts of glacial meltwater at the end of the last ice age. So yeah, there would yeah. definitely be some of that as well. Um, so, yeah, and then, uh, you know, I understand that uh, you've got a couple of chefs coming in. Is that true? You've got some people going to be cooking food there? Yeah, it's going to be catered, yeah. Or, I guess, Darren's uh, breakfast and lunch anyways, right? That's are, right. Are people still on yeah, their own breakfast. for dinner? So, people yeah. be on their own for dinner, but we'll have breakfast and lunch for them. Yeah, they're friends of the show, too. So okay. they're, they're, they've sort of told us they're going to help out with that, with the menu and, uh, and taking care of us food-wise, which is fantastic. Which was that? What was that train ride called again? It's on the Durango Silverton. Oh, yeah. So that's, wow, that looks just beautiful. There's pictures oh, of it. Wait. There's pictures of it on uh, <clears throat> hdtravel.me or also. Uh, badcomet.com and if you go to Pagoda, the Elk Lake Lodge there's a bunch of pictures there and I think that's the train going along yeah, the that side would be there it. yeah 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 as soon as my computer boots up here I'm going to check that out yeah it looks it, it looks pretty fantastic there's also a hot springs at Pagosa Springs I didn't even know about before that's pretty cool oh yeah I mean that's where it gets its name from from you know centuries if not millennia old sacred springs that were um you know, utilized by the the Native Americans who inhabited the area for thousands of years. And so, yeah, those springs are there. And I'm sure we would get some chances to go and um, immerse ourselves in the springs. They're not, apparently are some primitive springs, but I think they're fairly developed, but they're still, it's still the water straight out of the ground, the hot water straight out of the ground. It's there right next to the, um, basically overlooking the San Juan River. Which flows through Pagosa Springs. Hmm. <clears throat> what about uh, Colorado as far as like, we, you know, we've talked to you in the past a few times and we talk about the big melt and the meltwater and all that. And, and But it seems to me like most of that happened uh, or it seems to be the context of that is kind of closer to where we are in Calgary. And then I'm always thinking of it just below. So... So there's parts where that has carried through, like that meltwater is carried through down through Colorado as well. Well, no, not that would not be directly. Well, yes and no. Yeah, it was not meltwater coming off of the great ice sheets. You know, when you're in Calgary, you are under. What's interesting about Calgary, it's right in that zone where the great Laurentide ice sheet met the Cordilleran ice sheet. Now yeah. the Laurentide was the big, the bigger of the two, the one that was kind of centered over Hudson Bay. The Cordilleran was over the Canadian Rockies, and um, <clears throat> when those when those uh, ice sheets melted, there was a tremendous amount of meltwater that fed directly off of those. Yeah. The area where we're going to be in Colorado was not being fed by those glaciers. There were, however, more extensive glaciers uh, 
over Colorado and all along the Rocky Mountains during uh, the late Ice Age. So they melted, but I'm right, assuming right. also that a lot of the fluvial features were formed by, um, you know, very intense, prolonged torrential rainfall, because you can see a lot of the evidence of rainfall, um, you know, all over unglaciated areas. For example, in the southwest, south of where we would be, down in the deserts of Arizona and New Mexico and Southern California, you can find the work of gigantic water flows. And, of course, these were not being fed directly by the great ice complexes over Canada and northern United States. Right. You can also find those in the southeast. You know, all in the southern Appalachians, there are massive um, boulder-choked channels, you know, with boulders the size of, you know, stacked up that are the size of SUVs. And, you know, they are the product of discrete events that have occurred that are way outsized compared to um, typical things that we've experienced in modern times. And the dating that I've looked at for the events in the Southern Appalachians mostly seem to point to the Terminal Ice Age, again, around that critical Younger Dryas period yeah. from about 11,000 to 13,000 years ago. So was Colorado under ice back then, then? No, not as a whole. The mount, there were mountain glaciers. Right. Okay, but it wasn't like not, it wasn't like covering that low in the states back then. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The mountain glaciers were much more extensive. Right. Right. During the late ice age, um, but no, it was not under or covered by the great ice sheets that covered pretty much all of Canada and uh, a pretty good chunk of north. Northern United States. Right, like Dakota, um, some you know, of because, Idaho and all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, northern Idaho was yeah. under the ice sheets, northern Washington State, um, northern Montana, North Dakota, northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, all the way down in east, like around the Mississippi. Yeah. The ice came as far south as it came. It didn't come as far south in the western states as it did around the, the central states. Oh, um, just because of the lowland and the topography made it easy for the ice to migrate down south. So one of some of the earliest ice ages came almost as far south as, like, say, St. Louis. Um, but, yeah, so, so those glaciers, when, for example, when they melted, you had huge volumes of meltwater coming down the Mississippi River. You had huge volumes coming down the Missouri River. You had tremendous volumes of water coming down the Columbia River. All three of these rivers... And the the Ohio River as well. All four of these rivers headed onto the southern margin of the Great Ice Sheet. So when the ice melted, it was feeding water directly into these river valleys. Whereas if you go down to an area where we're going to be, like yeah. by the San Juan River, the Rio Grande River, the Animas River, they were not being fed by the Great Ice Sheets. They were being fed by mountain, more extensive mountain glaciers. But I think that the extent of the flooding, like when we go through Durango, we'll see Durango is actually built in a channel that has these massive terrace formations. And, you know, what we're going to do is we will have um, not only the field trips, but we will do uh, multimedia presentations to show people and uh, exactly, you know, what it is we're looking at, how these features were formed. So that then when we go out in the field, we'll already have some of that background knowledge. So 
we're going to incorporate both. We'll do like slideshows, uh, possibly videos where we'll show, okay, here's a particular feature. Here's an animated clip showing how it formed. Then the next day we'll go out and we'll see features. Oh, that, wow. Uh, we're formed those kinds of, yeah. That um, makes it more interesting. I mean, you know, people see this stuff all the time, but they have no framework for understanding what they're looking at. Yeah. So um, that's what we're trying to remedy here. We're trying to teach people to see the world through new eyes and to understand and recognize that there are these tremendous features all around the planet um, that are the legacy of these tremendous world-changing events. Yeah. And out there, Colorado, where we're going to be, is is not immune from that. Um, and much of what we'll be looking at will be the the consequence of of tremendous events. And then, I mean, then we'll be able to just hang out around the fire in the evening. And and you know, I'm, I think you know, there's so much more than just just the the geology and, and the archaeology and, and the archaeology to talk about too. You know, I mean, we had you over at the studio there a few years back and you know I'm, I'm looking forward to some of those sort of <clears throat> you know esoteric, the, conversation. esoteric conversations and stuff like that that were just great you know and we could do it it'll be a little warmer down there well mind you we're here in the summer it wasn't so bad but we can light a big old fire oh yeah well we'll have a bonfire and kind of um relive what it was like to you know be on a uh, one of the Chacoan people up lighting the signal fires the bonfires to signal. That's another interesting thing that we could do as a future, um, a, a future excursion would be to explore. Um, because where we're going to be is we're going to be on the very northern rim of the Chacoan culture, but it filled the whole San Juan Basin of New Mexico and then spilled over, you know, into Arizona and southern Utah. And there's a whole complex of these ceremonial centers and these outlying um, sites that are apparently used ceremoniously, um, and, and these um, signal towers, which were dotted around the desert, uh, spaced far enough apart so that you could basically, and the whole complex was appeared to be centered on Chaco Canyon. So there was actually a signal tower on the rim of Chaco Canyon. If that a bonfire was lit on this prominence, it could be seen for 10 or 12 miles away. And there would be another signal tower over there um, at, at, at these lo other locations. And when the central signal tower was seen near Chaco Canyon, other bonfires would be lit on top of these other prominences that were these signal towers. And within a matter of probably literally minutes, yeah. you could get a whole network covering of these fires that could be seen over an area of ten or 12,000 square miles. And so when we go to Chimney Rock, that will be one of the northernmost uh, Chacoan outliers that was used not only as an, uh, an astronomical observatory, um, utilizing these really unique natural pro uh, uh, prominences, these natural uh, rocks, pinnacle rocks, that's what I'm trying to say. It was also a signal tower, and you can actually see the remnants of the signal tower, and there are... I mean, last time I was there, I think, which was five or six years ago, you could actually see where, where the burnt timbers had been uh, up on top of this mountain. So then that <clears throat> that particular signal tower could be seen 20 miles to the south. 
You couldn't see it directly from Chaco Canyon, but you could see one that was 10 or 12 miles north of Chaco Canyon. And then when that bonfire was lit, you could see that fire from Chimney Rock. Wow. That's like right yeah. out of Lord of the Rings. Like that's what they, they show like in these big fantasy epic movies. That's how they communicate, you know, all these signals like yeah, yeah, getting there was spread a, all the way along. I think it was in Return of the King, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Where they were using the signal towers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same system. Yeah. So what, do you know what they were signaling for back then? Like, was that invasion type stuff? Or was, I, want, I wonder if it was, uh, or, or, or weather. I wonder if it was like for natural stuff or for like just tribal invasion type things. I don't know. Yeah. I would like to know, and I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, I don't know. Well, I'm an Indian, maybe so I have some somebody, Maybe somebody will figure it out in May. Somebody will have an epiphany and will finally get the lowdown on what they were up to. Yeah. Smoke signal podcasting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is it. Uh, we do have a question from the chats. Okay. There's a super chat. that came with a donation to the show. So nice. I'm gonna, it's going to get cherry picked. Once again, I turn out to be influ influ influenced by uh, donations. So here we go. Hi, Randall and Grimerica. I enjoy all your work. A question for Randall, if that's okay. If you look at Gobekli Tepe's Vulture Stone Pillar number 43, <laughs> the handbags on top, zoom in. There are trees, animals, and humans becoming overcome by a tsunami. I have done a lot of work on my channel triangulating the position of a comet impact in the South Pacific Ocean 10,800 BC, which may have caused this or a similar event congruent, congruous with your work and unifying it with Robert Schock's CME in 9,600 BC. Many disasters over many millennia. I've brainstormed narrow approaches where tsunamis would be amplified like Alaska's Litua Bay and the Gulf of California as a good candidate for mega tsunami launch ramps. Feel free to answer when you have time. Oh, yeah. I mean, clearly. I mean, what, what's the name of the, uh, the individual? Do we have a name? Pangea Republic. So okay, we, Pangea don't, we Republic, don't have a real right. name. Okay, but that certainly is a good enough name. I like that, Pangea Republic. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I think clearly one of the things that we've seen in the last decade or two is the realization that many of the global coastlines have evidence of these massive tsunamis. Um, yeah, I, it sounds interesting. I mean, I, I, I would not be sh shocked to find out that there's evidence from, you know, 12,800 years ago for uh, an impact into the Pacific Ocean. I think we're just beginning to really figure out how complex this series of catastrophes really was. You know, a lot of the so-called critics who have been, um, you know, kind of derisively dismissing uh, some of these ideas, they will say things like, well, if it was an impact, it would just be one single, you know, one single event that we would see, and then it would be over. For example, in the mass extinctions of the great megafauna, you know, they were looking for... Um, the idea that, well, if it was an impact of something from space, it would be all at once, and the, you know, the, the mortality event would have been across the board, and then it would have been over, and it wouldn't have been something that would have, um, you know, stretched out over a thousand or even two thousand years or, or longer, which, which apparently it did. But 
really when you begin to reconstruct the geomorphic evidence and the paleoclimatic evidence and the proxy evidence, there was a whole series of things that happened. It wasn't one clean event that kicked the earth out of the ice age. And I think that just like, you know, when we look back at the, 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 um, well, the year without a summer, which was the year 1816, you know, this came right during the period called the Maunder Minimum, which was a period of very low solar activity. And it was also coupled with um, a period of heightened volcanic activity. So you kind of had it coming from both ends. It was kind of a perfect storm in a way. Um, you had a series of volcanic events. Uh, I think the first one actually, they don't know where it was. The volcanologists don't know exactly where it was, but it definitely left a, a signal in the Greenland ice cores and other ice cores that would have happened in 1809. Then there was apparently a couple of others, but then the biggie was Tambora in 1850, 18. 15. Mm -hmm. And it, it, that particular one really blanketed the Earth's atmosphere with sulfate aerosols, which then um, created a, like an insulating reflective blanket that, that, you know, basically reflected a lot of the solar radiation back in space and it caused cooling. But then that occurred at the same time, basically, as you had this period of low solar activity. Now, it's interesting, there's some work out there that I haven't really had a chance to fully investigate yet. It's very tantalizing and suggestive, which is this, that it seems there may be a correlation between times of low solar activity and heightened volcanic activity. What the correlation would be there, I'm not sure, other than perhaps during a, a, a period where there might be uh, several decades of, of uh, diminished solar activity, there may be enough of a cooling within the lithosphere that it could cause a, 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 a volcanic reaction. Um, I'm not sure what the explanation would be if the correlation is spurious or there is actually something there. We certainly do know that during the deglaciation, there was very intense volcanism going on because I have pictures, photographs of, of where you can see thick, thick layers of volcanic ash sandwiched in between flood sediments when these gigantic mega floods were going on. What was the solar but, activity like then? Well, it was apparently doing some very strange things from what I've been able to, to find out. It seems like there was a period of increased solar activity, but then that was causing the, um, the warmth you see, just prior to the onset of the Younger Dryas, you had about a two-millennium period where the climate of the Earth was undergoing a gentle warming. That warming was consistent with the Milankovitch forces, which is the, the result of uh, three factors involved in the geometric relationship between the Earth and the Sun. And as those factors change, um, what happens is it regulates the amount of solar heat that reaches the Earth. In some periods of time, it allows an increase in warmth, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, and in other times, it's a, a decrease in warmth. Now, the Milankovitch cycles, or the Milankovitch forces, usually play out over millennia, right? And what we see at the end of the last ice age is consistent with the gradualistic models of Milankovitch warming. This was named after, a, 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 what was he, Czechoslovakian, I think, um, mathematician named Balutin Milankovitch. 
Anyways, what old Malutin found out was that you would have times where the uh, forces would amplify each other, and at other times the forces would cancel each other out. And what I'm talking about here now is, for example, the distance of the Earth from the sun, uh, having to do with the changing ellipticity of its orbit, the obliquity of the ecliptic, which is in the, the, the uh, precession of the equinoxes, the precession of the Earth's axis, these three interacting forces, like I said, can amplify the solar effects or they can um, dampen the solar effects, right? What we see in the last couple of millennia coming up to the sudden trend, younger driest transition is that the climate was warming. And so if you go back 1718 to 20,000 years ago, you're in the period called the late glacial maximum. And that was the coldest depths of the ice, last phase of the ice age, and it was also the most extensive um, uh, distribution of the ice sheets. And it was during this time when the Cordilleran and the Laurentide ice sheets coalesced right around um, Calgary, right? Yep. When the warming began, both ice sheets began to shrink back. And this is most likely the time when the ice-free, so-called ice-free corridor would have opened up between the two great ice sheets and allowed migratory um, passage through that corridor. And for a long time, this this um, ice-free corridor was um, part of the models of the peopling of North America, right, that, the, right. that the progenitors of the Clovis people came across the Bering Land Bridge. They wouldn't have been able to, to migrate southward during the peak of the Ice Age because you basically you know, you get to Alaska and there would have been a, a, a giant wall of ice. But after a couple of thousand years of this Milankovitch warming, it apparently opened up enough of a corridor between the two ice sheets that you could have made passage between there. <laughs> Excuse me. But then what happens is around between 12,800 and 12,900 years ago, there's a sudden change in the global climate. And this is the onset of the younger driest cold period, which lasted for about 1,300 years um, from the previous time, which was called the Balling Alarod. There was two back-to-back -back periods of the Balling and the Alarod, which were these periods of this, this warming climate, right? And so when the, when the ice sheet started receding, you had the, the great megafauna were following um, the, the receding margin of the ice sheet towards the north, um, in the lower um, United States area. Likewise, and here, here's the interesting thing, the recession of the ice was apparently about as fast on its northern rim as it was on its southern, which would, doesn't seem to make sense. But anyways, right around 12,800 to 12,900 years ago, the, the sort of more normal gradualistic warming that can be explained suddenly terminated and within a matter of a year or a couple of years or maybe far less than a year, there was a major shift in climate and it basically snapped back into full glacial cold like it had been at 17, 18, 19,000 years ago. And for the next 1,300 years, the melting stopped, the ice sheets began to grow again. And then at 11,600, there was a period of rapid warming. Now, I also failed to mention that around 14,600, according to the most recent dates, there was a huge spike of 
uh, meltwater into the global oceans. Now, I think we have to look at some of the dating during those periods um, with a little bit of skepticism because, for one thing, in the case of, a, of an asteroid or comet impact, you could also have a much larger influx of uh, radioactive carbon into the Earth's atmosphere, and that could bias the, the radiocarbon dating from that period of time. So I think that we're still going to have to spend a fair amount of time trying to work out the specifics on these dates of these transitions. I'm not convinced that the, that the uh, first meltwater spike, which is called meltwater spike 1A, actually did occur at 14,600 years ago. But again, we don't know for sure. Maybe it did. It's just that we need to be careful about the dating of, of these transitionary episodes. Um, so anyways, there, was a, there were two very large meltwater spikes into the, into the global ocean that sort of bracketed the Younger Dryas uh, cold spell. And it was during this younger, roughly 1,300 years of the Younger Dryas cold spell that we see the disappearance of the Clovis culture in North America and the collapse of the great uh, megafaunal species. Now, did all the megafauna die at once? No, they probably did not. But here's the thing. We may be looking at an event that really was a period, we may be looking at a time where it can best be described as a period of clustered bombardment, um, not just a single episode. So that may be a, a, a false explanation. That may be actually a sort of a straw man argument that the, that the skeptics are making by saying, well, we know that the megafauna actually disappeared over a couple of thousand years. Well, the point is, is that if humans did not hunt the megafauna to extinction, which I certainly don't think they did, then what did cause the extinction, right? So I think the evidence that we're accruing and accumulating at this time is going to show that there was actually uh, a period there of maybe 2,000 years where the Earth was subjected to multiple episodes of bombardment. Mm. And, and, and the way you would explain that is um, by Earth running into a stream of debris from a large disintegrating comet, and this perhaps happening on multiple occasions. Um, just like you know, each year Earth now runs through the streams of disintegrating comets, right? But usually the material that the Earth is uh, transecting the band of material is very small, fine material, and it's this material that basically makes the, the famous meteor streams like the Leonids or the Taurids or the Geminids or the Aquarids or, or um, <clears throat> some of the, the, the famous meteor streams that, that you can go out and see. You know, you have the Leonids, which occur, uh, what, around um, in late November. Um, you have the Geminids that occur, or you have the Taurids the most likely candidate for a progenitor comet that could have broken up and um, spawned a stream of debris would have been the precursor to what is now Comet Anki and the, um, the Tauric meteor stream. Yeah. I got Just a couple... Based upon... Yeah, go ahead. I got a couple questions. Do you... What, what did you say the, uh, the peak of the Ice Age was, like the coldest part? Was it 30,000 years ago, you said? Or 20... No, no. About 18 to 20. 18 to 20, yeah. Ago. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. And then I, I have a question that, from... That is, Go ahead. Okay. The, that is the late glacial maximum. Yeah, yeah. So to, 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 my final thought in regards to um, um, 
the previous question was um, that, yeah, I think it's entirely plausible that there could have been multiple strikes on the Earth during this this period of, of hypothesized bombardment. Um, so uh, an impact into the Pacific Ocean, it could have yielded uh, large-scale tsunamis, certainly. Yeah, and I'd be very interested in seeing um, what kind of evidence that um, this individual has accumulated. Well, that, that, that Gobekli Tepe number 43 shows that uh, <clears throat> it seems to show... Yeah, I'm going to have to go back. I haven't seen that, so yeah. I, I'm going to have to go back and, and, and check that out. If that is, in fact, the case, that's very, very interesting. And, and um, I mean, it could be interpreted. It, it could be up to interpretation as, as well. It's it's fairly simple, you know. Those uh, carvings on the, not the carvings in yeah. the stone, but the uh, what do you call it? embossed car? Or not embossed, but they're the the opposite, right? Engraved. In, yeah, or they're not engraved, but they're out. Relief, car carvings. relief carvings. So, so that I wonder if that was where the people of that time made it through or or missed the missed that first. Cataclysm that thirteen hundred that that breaking after the thirteen hundred years, and then started warning about it before it happened again or something like that, like the secondary one. Like I wonder if there was that that you know that middle time between catastrophes where all this kind of happened. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, that's. I would not dismiss that idea. Um, Again, until more further excavations are done at Gobekli Tepe, we don't really know really how old it is. I think the dates are coming in at right at Meltwater Pulse 1B, I think 11,600 to 12,000 years right yeah, in there. Yeah. Um, but they may be much older. I yeah. don't know. Maybe Graham Hancock has some more additional information on that. Do, um, do you know of any maps that were made where before the that um, that flooding, like before the Meltwater... Whereas you could see, like, is there any anybody that's sort of um, done a, uh, a, no, vir no, a virtual no, map? No, I don't think anybody's done anything like that. You mean it done in ancient times or in, in no, modern like times? in modern times, showing where the the old land would have been, like three hundred feet or whatever no. the increase is. I mean, I'd love to see where that you, new coastline. You, you, you've seen there, there are yeah, there are some maps that have been done that show the global coastline, I think, at a, at a lowered, um, oh, the ones I've got in my slideshow, I think it's 300 feet lower. Yeah. But at the late glacial maximum, sea levels were closer to 400 feet lower. So I haven't seen anything that is down um, at that at that 400 foot below sea level. level. Um, but, yeah, it would be a very valuable and interesting project to assume a 400-foot lowered sea level and map the global coastline. Yeah, like Central America. What's Central America look like? I mean... Well, it would have been much much larger. Yeah. Than all, <laughs> yeah. Every island yeah. on Earth would have been yeah. much more extensive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and here where I live in, in Georgia, you know, we'll go out to the, to the coast, you know, to the shore, seashore quite frequently, but, you know, if we weren't back 15, 16, 17,000 years ago during the late glacial maximum, if we were standing where we were now standing on the seashore, we'd have been in the middle of a, of a forest. And yeah. it would have been another 30, 40, 50, 60 miles further east that we would have had to have traveled over what is now drowned coastal shelf to get to the shoreline, to get yeah. to the coast yeah. at that time. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I have a question here from from Rob. He emailed this because he knew you were coming on the show. 
and um, I don't really know exactly how to ask it, but I want I, we might have talked about this a little bit last time as well, but I forgot to watch the YouTube video, but we had a, I had a guy on uh, Ben Davidson from Suspicious Observer. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel. He, he takes uh, measurements of the solar activity all the time. It's a super interesting interesting um, channel, but he also it, it also has to do with the electric universe theory. So he's wondering he's wondering if you've if you've like you you and Hancock have put forward this uh, the theory of the asteroid impact like around twelve thousand years ago, but but could the impact that ended the last ice age be in fact a discharge from the sun? Like there's a theory that the sun is a micronova, and he wonders if you have any thoughts on on that theory. I guess it would also be uh, I think he was talking before in a different way about it being an electromagnetic. Um, uh, discharge or something as opposed to just a physical comment? Well, you, th this is, okay, you know, I, I can't say at this point that I'm, I'm knowledgeable about the electric universe theories, only because uh, up to this point, the evidence that I've been looking at has not demanded that as an explanation. I'm yeah, not yeah. saying that that isn't an explanation. Um, I'm, you know, going to lead towards it was uh, a celestial object, either asteroidal or cometary in nature, simply because of the nature of the proxy evidence is consistent with what we know. I mean, we know there's a platinum spike. We, we've, you know, there's an iridium spike. There are uh, magnetic grains, microspherols. Every one of these things is known to be consistent with an actual impact event. Right now, Robert Schock, you know, his his hypothesized that, yes, it was a solar, it was a massive coronal CME or coronal mass ejection that, that caused it. Now, one of the things I've gotten really interested in is, you know, is, is I guess you'd say it's sort of the dynamic solar system model. And the idea there is that the solar system is an interactive uh, machine, if you will. And even small things that happen in one part of the machine can have large-scale effects throughout the course of the, um, of the whole solar system. And so one of the things that uh, I've really gotten interested in is over the last 20 years with the deployment of uh, solar observing satellites, one of the discoveries that kind of came unexpectedly out of the blue was the number of um, sun-grazing comets that were discovered. Huge numbers, if they far in excess of what anybody had even imagined, um, had existed, and many of these comets are seen to fall into the sun, and interestingly, even though the comets are minuscule relative to the mass of the sun, they seem to trigger um, effects that are completely out of proportion to, their, to the scaling between these um, sun-grazing comets and the, uh, the sun itself. Of course, what's happening is they're accelerating to such high rates of speed as they're falling into the sun that they plunge deep through the, the, the solar chromosphere. And one of the things that has been observed and witnessed now in the aftermath of a cometary impact of, into the sun is uh, large-scale upwelling of, of plasma, um, particular plasma that will oftentimes burst out in the form of coronal mass ejection. Now, that, to me, could perhaps provide a link between two uh, great realms of phenomena here. On the one hand, we've got impacts of uh, asteroids and cometary and or cometary material affecting the Earth. On the other hand, 
variability, a variable sun affecting the Earth, and the idea of solar storms. I mean, we know that a solar storm that could happen again, like uh, that would be similar to the Carrington event that happened back in the 19th century. If it happens now, we're in trouble um, because it could fry most of the electrical circuitry on Earth, or at least on the side of the Earth that is facing into the solar storm. Um, and that, that could cause major economic consequences. I mean, you know, if, if imagine that the whole communications grid suddenly goes down and it takes a month to rebuild the thing. I mean, that could be that could be pretty devastating. And that would be just a very minor. I mean, I'm thinking within the scale of potential phenomena, the Carrington event was probably relatively minor. But what I'm getting back to is if if there was a period of enhanced influx into the solar system somewhere, you know, um, tens of millennia ago. And here, here, here's here's one of the models. Um, this is the British neocatastrophists, um, Victor Klub, uh, William Napier. Um, I think there's an Australian astronomer, Duncan Steele. There's a, there's about a half a dozen of these guys that have been studying uh, studying um, comets and their behavior and their interaction with the Earth. They're the ones who pretty much came up with the scenario, and it's supported by like. 30 years of, of accumulating evidence that perhaps between 20 and 30,000 years ago, a very large comet came into the inner solar system from the cometary, the, the theoretical cometary reservoir of the Kuiper disk, because comets that would be um, engendered from that um, domain would tend to be uh, their, their orbits would follow close to the plane of the ecliptic, which would Whereas if they're not coming from there, if they're coming from deep space or coming from the hypothetical Oort cloud, they could come in at all angles to the uh, Earth's orbital plane around the Earth. But if they're coming from the Kuiper disk, or the Kuiper belt as it's called, <clears throat> they would be coming in on a pathway that would carry them low. Uh, so their angle of inclination to the Earth's orbital plane or plane of the ecliptic would be low. So therefore, when it starts breaking up, that debris... Um, Get strewn throughout in a in a belt of debris that could transect or intersect, rather I should say, Earth's orbit. So picture a very large comet coming in, and we're talking about a cometary nucleus that might be 50 to 100 miles in diameter. It begins to break up, and it begins to spawn several meteor streams and several actually smaller comets and asteroidal type bodies that are now in this orbit around the sun. Now as these Objects are orbiting the sun. Um, they might get swept up um, by Jupiter, something along the lines of what we witnessed in 1994 with the um, the consumption of Shoemaker-Levy 9 by Jupiter in the second uh, week of July 1994, when we saw we we were actually able to see a comet, um, a single cometary nucleus breaking up and forming 21 offspring that now formed a cosmic chain that circled around the sun and looped back and, and plunged into the Jovian atmosphere over uh, a period of about a week. So picture, if you will, a large cometary nucleus coming in and beginning, un, beginning to undergo a hierarchy of fragmentations. Now, a cometary nucleus tends to be a very loosely bound uh, aggregation of material. So when it's out in deep space, and it's, it's essentially in hibernation, it's in deep freeze, 
But once it comes into the inner solar system, it begins to to come back to life, and it begins to discharge volatiles and, and undergo lots of stresses that can cause that nucleus to begin to disintegrate or disaggregate. So as it goes through this hierarchy of uh, disintegrations, what it's doing is it's creating clusters of debris in its orbit. So if the Earth is crossing that orbit during a period when the concentration of this fragmented debris is greater, then there will be a greater probability of the Earth actually sweeping some of this stuff up and, and uh, having a series of impacts. If it goes through per, uh, across the stream when the material is, is widely scattered or dispersed, we probably can get across the stream with nothing more than a you know uh, 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 an impressive meteor shower. So it all depends. See, over a period of time, what will happen is that debris will slowly spread out and become uniformly distributed about the, the, the orbital pathway. <clears throat> but before it does that, there would be um, numerous potential periods of time where the Earth could sweep through that debris and get bombarded not just once. See, um, the Earth crosses the torrid stream twice each year, um, coming and going, basically, where the material is coming in, um, and where it, which is actually the fall time, late October, early November. That's why the torrid meteors are quite often called the Halloween meteors. And I've got several video clips talking extensively about this up there on the Geocosmic Rex YouTube site. So if somebody wants to learn more about the Halloween meteors, they can go on that site and, 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 and watch those videos. Then the stream arcs around the sun as it's coming back from the sun. The Earth crosses the stream for the, the second time, and this is in um, late June, early July, right? So the thing is, is that when the Earth crosses that stream during the late fall, you're looking up the stream. So you're looking out into space and the area, the radiant of that stream, which is the point at which the stream appears to be emanating from space, not that it's actually coming from there, but the radiant of any given meteor shower or meteor stream is named after the constellation in the sky, which it appears to be emanating from. So the Taurid meteor shower is named after the constellation of Taurus because if you go out, in the in in the fall, late October, early November, and you look towards the constellation of a Taurus of Taurus, you will see those meteors appearing to emanate literally from the shoulder of the bull, <clears throat> right in the area of the Pleiades, right? Which I, I I believe strongly is one of the reasons why the Pleiades were always held in such high regard, and were were objects of such um, astute interest by by ancient peoples all over the world. But in any case. Crossing during the fall, the late October, you're looking up the stream, you're looking out into space, you're looking towards the constellation of Taurus. Crossing in the summertime, the stream is coming from behind around the sun. So what happens is, is that the, the, the meteors tend to be visible in the fall and invisible in the summer because you're looking in the direction of the sun and it's coming in at you in daylight. Now, interestingly, the peak of the, torrid, the summertime torrids, like I said, is late June, early July. The Tunguska bolide event, 1908, was June 30th. Mm. And according to all of the eyewitness accounts that have been collected and, and, and um, organized together, it would suggest that 
a lot of the people who witnessed it said things like, it looked as if this great fireball was disgorged from the sun. It came out of the sun. You know, many of the, the, the eyewitness accounts describe such a thing. So what that's suggesting is two things. The timing of the year was appropriate to be a torrid meteor, and the direction that it came from in space was consistent with it being a torrid meteor. So I'm inclined, of all the various explanations, to believe that that Tunguska event of 1908 was probably a remnant of this great stream that Earth would have swept through several times back at the end of the last ice age. Now, <clears throat> the, the British neocatastrophist guys, like I said, they were theorizing that maybe this great comet came into the inner solar system sometime around 20 to 30,000 years ago. Now, there is a possible mechanism whereby comets could be dislodged from their, their hypothetical reservoir in space to where they could then plunge towards the, the sun. Um, and that, that um, degree of influence would be on a galactic level. Hmm. Or perhaps uh, it could be something like, um, you know, Paul LaViolette theorizes that there is a galactic core explosion that happens periodically. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. It's an interesting idea. Uh, another possibility is a nearby supernova, something that would cause... Um, on a more galactic or cosmic level, a disruption of the cometary reservoirs that could then send possibly even multiple cometary nuclei cascading towards the sun and in the process disintegrating and creating um, this litter of cos cosmic litter in the inner solar system that the Earth could encounter. Now, <clears throat> the other thing is, getting back to the idea of the uh, sun-grazing comets, you see, if you have a very large comet that comes in, what we've seen is that there is a disproportional response in the sun to very small comets, one that might be 5 or 10 miles maximum. They say perhaps some of the, the um, um, sun-grazing comets that have been witnessed are the, about the size of the comet Halley nucleus, which is about 10 miles in diameter, right? Well, if you had, say, a cometary nucleus that, that's 50 to 100 miles in diameter falling into the sun, what could possibly what you know we don't know but yeah. i think we're we're it would be legitimate to theorize that there could be a very substantial solar response to that right um so in that scenario it's very possible that we could see how we could synthesize these various phenomena and and actually it then maybe to say well yes perhaps if the solar system was subjected to this massive influx of cometary material it's going to affect not only the Earth, we might even be looking for effects on Mars. You know, we might be looking for effects on the moon, right? Um, but it also might be looking at, at, at um, a response from the sun itself, you see. So it could be that we're looking, we, we, we have to expand our thinking to, to, to a much greater phenomena than just a one, one dumb rock hitting the Earth. And to say, well, if, it, if in that model, that oversimplified model, then yeah, then it should be, there should have been one mortality event. Um, it should have been global in extent. And there, uh, because obviously when you talk about um, some of the species of woolly mammoths, for, or mammoths, for example, it's estimated there might have been 10 to 12 mammoths worldwide during the, 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 the late Pleistocene, right? Million. Um, and they were distributed 
from all the way across Eurasia, across the Bering Land Bridge into Alaska. They ranged in the unglaciated southern United States. They were in Central America. Mastodons were in southern United States. They were Central America. They were South America. Yet they went extinct over the entire globe. And it wouldn't have taken many at all. I mean, think about American bison. You know, there were millions of bison roaming the Great Plains, you know, when the Europeans arrived, maybe, you know, in, in 1800, 1850, in that period in, in there, right? Around the turn of the 20th century, the, the numbers of bison had been reduced to just a couple of hundred individuals. But now that particular species has rebounded to the extent that you can go into any grocery store and buy a bison burger, right? So if you were looking back 10,000 years from now, you could miss completely missed the fact that, that the American bison came within a hair's breadth of extinction, right? So what I'm getting at, though, is that if you have to exterminate, you see, you can't even have a single mating pair survive, or at least, you know, even a, a half a dozen or a dozen mating pairs, because that is enough to reestablish a species. You have to kill every single individual of the species, or the species will survive and it, and it will procreate and, and replenish the species. But in the case of, uh, of over 100 species of mammal at the end of the last ice age, they did not survive. Now, it's one thing to say, well, uh, paleo-Indian hunters in a blitzkrieg assault wiped out the, the mammoths worldwide. I've gone in the, the research that I've been looking at trying to get a handle on, well, how many people occupied the earth at the end of the last ice age. Most of the estimates that I've come across in the literature and in the various studies suggest five to 10 million people was all, right? If that's true, then you're talking about there were more mammoths in the world than there were people, <laughs> right? So, but the thing is, you could have a group of people go into one particular locale or one particular region and wipe out all of the animals that were in that region. But you have to simultaneously wipe them out over the entire planet or they ain't going extinct. Sorry. And the thing is, is that, you know, when you begin to look at the life ways of the, of the ancient cultures, like the Clovis, who, who have taken the blame for the extermination of the, of the late Pleistocene megafauna, they were considered to have, you know, the, the term is overkill. They were such voracious killers that they were able to sweep across the Bering Land Bridge, down through the Ice Free Corridor, all the way to the Tierra del Fuego, and in the process, wipe out over, you know, wipe out 10 million mammoths, along with 90 or 100 other species, including the great cave bear, the short-faced bear, the Irish elk, the giant camels, the glyptodons, the mylodons, the giant beavers, you know, on and on and on and on and on. But they all went extinct. You see, that's the point. And, you know, you can't tell me, okay, human hunters killed the, the mammoths. Well, what about the American Pleistocene lion? What about the saber-toothed cats? You know, they went extinct. What about the great, um, you know, the, the Pleistocene cheetah? That went extinct. What about the woolly rhinoceros? They went extinct. You see, Oh, are you going to say then that these paleo-Indian hunters on foot carrying spears was able to exterminate all of those animals? Yet all it takes is a little bit of thought and a little bit of knowledge to realize that that scenario is ludicrous, right? 
Did humans hunt woolly mammoths? I think the evidence is clear that, yeah, they did, just like modern humans, modern um, native tribes in Africa hunted elephants. Although, for the most part, most of them stayed away from elephants because elephants are extremely big and very, very dangerous. The one tribe of people that did hunt elephants regularly was pygmies, and their strategy was to have very sharp spears. They would run under the elephant's belly, pierce upwards with their steer, with their spear, apparently in the spot where they just knew <clears throat> that the that they would that they would have a rapid bleed out, and then they would simply follow the elephant until it succumbed uh, to blood loss, and then they they could kill it off. See, but at the same time, what we see is that the Clovis people hunted small game. They did lots of gathering of of you know of produce from natural produce. They also fished and and and. You know, so so they had very diverse diets, and you know, a tribe killing one mammoth for whatever reason. I mean, the amount of meat you're going to have, you know, a couple of tons of meat. You they know, don't that's bother. They just slice season. off a burger, fucking leave the rest. That's yeah. That's in... Yeah, right, right. It's it, it, yeah. The whole scenario just makes no sense, and and it never has made sense. But but that's been the dominant scenario for. Oh, since the middle of the 20th century, anyway, and and that particular scenario, the Blitzkrieg, the the, the Paleo Indian Blitzkrieg scenario, um, was really beginning to lose favor as we get into the 80s and the 90s, and more information was was coming to light about the actual lifestyles of the people of those times, the Clovis people, and so on, and it just was not consistent with. Uh, a group of people that would be on this rampage, killing every everything in sight, and leaving this, you know, like the killing fields of of Pol Pot or the 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 killing fields of World War One, where there were so many bodies that they just laid there. You know, I mean, so really, you almost of necessity have to turn to the idea of some type of a catastrophe. I, I just you can't get around it now. Where we're at is nobody really has the final explanation yet. Um, I think, like what I'm getting at, is that we might be looking at a kind of a perfect storm, multiple phenomena interacting, um, amplifying each other. So just just like I was using the analogy of the uh, year without a summer being associated with two things. It was a period of low solar activity, which would produce a natural cooling, along with heightened volcanic activity, would also produce cooling of the Earth. So those two things together... <clears throat> excuse me, created a, a couple of years where 1816 was the worst. For most of the Northern Hemisphere, they call it the year without a summer. You know, I mean, in New England, on July 4th, there was a snowstorm, right? They were going to go out and celebrate July 4th, and <laughs> it, they, people got snowed out. So, I mean, and crops died in the fields. Um, you know, they, they, they attempted three times to, to uh, grow crops, and three times the crops were frozen out. So, and you literally had a period of like diminished sun where people describe weeks at a time where the sun was barely visible because there was so much um, particulate matter in the atmosphere. Now, this is from a volcanic eruption, Mount Tambora, which, which erupted in 1815, the year before. And it took three to four years for that particulate matter to clear out. But the thing is, some of the, some of the consequences of that are... They're looking back now and thinking that perhaps lasted literally for decades, far longer than anybody had previously imagined. Because 
because basically what it did was it injected this degree of chaos into the system. And even though the most immediate apparent effects ameliorated within three to four years, the after effects continued on for several decades. And um, I could certainly see something that like that on a, on a larger scale occurring at the end of the last ice age. So, you know, if you had impacts into the ice sheet, if you had impacts into land, if you had impacts into the ocean, each one of those impacts is going to produce a different suite oh, of yeah. effects. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, in some cases, like if, it's, if, it, if the strike is strictly on land, it's going to inject huge amounts of particle, particulate matter into the atmosphere, right? That's going to create a canopy that reduces solar radiation. It's also going to produce uh, extensive wildfires, which put soot and smoke into the atmosphere. So a, an impact into land exclusively would have a tendency to cool the Earth. If it was into the ocean, what it's going to do is it's going to loft huge amounts of water vapor into the atmosphere, which is really the most effective of all the greenhouse gases, and it could cause a heating. What would happen if you had multiple impacts where you were both into the ocean and or into the land or even onto an ice sheet? Well, here I think the, the, after, the consequences would be so chaotic, it might take decades if not centuries for these, these phenomena, these secondary and tertiary phenomena to play out. And then maybe even by the time they played out, you might have another round of, of bombardment, you see. We are it's such our infancy of understanding these great forces that have, have played out over the surface of the Earth and in the solar system as a whole. Um, we just have a whole lot to learn yet about this, this dy- how dynamic, truly dynamic, this planet is that we inhabit. <clears throat> That's why, Graham, it really irks me when I hear somebody saying that the science on climate change is settled, it's, uh, that the debate is over, it's so far from being settled that, that it's just, I mean, it's a completely absurd statement to yeah. make that, to believe that. Yeah. You know, and then say, okay, now we're going to, we're going to uh, enact policies based upon this assumption that the debate is over and that the, 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 the total, the dominant influence on climate is now anthropogenic. Yeah. And we can disregard all of these other potential uh, forces that have played out over the earth and the climate on any time scale that we can measure. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. We're just going to ignore all that because if it's the sun that's causing the warming, and I'll tell you right here, and now I think that the, the most of the warming of the 20th century is solar-related rather than carbon dioxide-related, and there's a ton tons of megatons of evidence to support that. Interestingly, that evidence gets ignored. The IPCC chooses to to discount the sun. They say, well, it's the solar constant. So based on the solar constant, we we can disregard the sun, right? No, I'm sorry. Every bit of evidence is now pointing to the fact that the sun is a much more variable star than anybody had imagined 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And we're just beginning. I mean, we've only got 10 to 20 years now of of satellite observations of the sun. And what we're seeing is that it's it's filled with I mean, it's it's all kinds of things that were discovered, like the the, that I mentioned, the 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 sun grazing comets. Nobody knew about that 30 years ago. Right. That there were sun grazing comets, you know, every few weeks, a comet falling into the sun and then the sun um, having a hyperactive response to that. You see. 
So, and, and again, you know, we're, think about in the last oh, couple of decades, how many times have we seen cosmic debris flying past the Earth, flying within the, the, the zone of the moon? Every few weeks, every few months, we're, there's a close, it's gotten to the point now where it's almost passe. <laughs> oh, there's going to be another, you know, half-mile asteroid passing, you know, just outside the orbit of the moon? Hmm, yawn. Well, look, what that's telling us is that, that the inner solar system, the, the, our, our cosmic neighborhood, is a hell of a lot more densely populated than anybody was imagining a generation or two ago. And interestingly, as astronomers are looking out into the cosmic neighborhood and seeing that there's a whole lot more stuff out there than anybody had imagined, and it's flying by the Earth all the time, while they're looking up at the sky, geologists have been looking down at the Earth and discovering that there are hundreds of scars, that the Earth is scarred by multiple impacts all throughout the, the history of this planet. That has been one of the recurring episodes in the Earth history is bombardment from space. And it's now being correlated with everything from climate change to geomagnetic field change to mass extinctions, um, all of these things. So what is happening, and my point that I'm trying to get here is that yeah, we are just really on the threshold of a whole new model of how the Earth works. And in order to understand that model, we have to really be literally looking at the entire solar system and looking at all of the factors, not just exclusively saying, well, it's only carbon dioxide. Because for one thing, carbon dioxide is limited in, in its function as a greenhouse gas. It, it It's only good up to... What happens is carbon dioxide captures most of its heat. Most of the heat that's captured by carbon dioxide is in the first 50 parts per million. And each increment, say 50 parts per million increase after that, it has an exponentially diminishing amount of heat that it, that it can capture. The IPC scientists, they know this. So what they have to do is they have to introduce positive feedbacks into their models in the form of water vapor. So what they do is they say, well, this this increase of of warmth caused by the carbon dioxide is going to cause more water vapor into the atmosphere. More water vapor is going to trap more heat. That's going to warm the oceans. Then the oceans is going to outgas more carbon dioxide. And but what they're not accounting for, which and there's a whole lot of evidence to support the idea that there's a net cooling because water vapor will form clouds and clouds generally reflect radiation back into space, depending on the type of cloud. Some clouds allow the radiation through, but others reflect more into space. The, 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 uh, the consensus of opinion that's emerging now is that, that it is a net cooling caused by cloud formation. But again, it's something we're just beginning to understand, you see. And, and the fact that Earth's uh, climate and atmosphere can... can uh, respond dynamically to changes in the Earth's geomagnetic field. And the Earth's geomagnetic field can respond in, uh, in turn to changes in the uh, solar activity, you see. So, we're, like I'm saying, my point is we're having to really understand now that Earth is part of a much bigger dynamic system that involves, yes, the whole solar system, but probably even beyond. We have to look at, at, at the whole, like, nearby stellar neighborhood, um, yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, the idea that nearby supernovas could cause um, an influx of cometary objects. And none of this is known for sure. I'm not saying this is the way it is, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. What I'm saying, though, is that there's a lot of evidence to suggest these as very real possibilities. 
And we know that it has to be more than carbon dioxide. Of yeah. that, there can be no question. Anybody who looks at it has to realize, yeah, it's definitely more than carbon now. Because for most of Earth's history, most of Earth's history, what you see is carbon dioxide levels in the Earth's atmosphere have been three, four, five, up to ten times greater than at present. And what we see is that the very low carbon dioxide levels in Earth's atmosphere coincide with the onset of the uh, late quaternary glacial cycles. Precisely, right? What happens if, is if there's a natural cooling, Let's say the sun goes into a period of inactivity. Then there's a lag time, there's a lag response where the, the uh, oceans will begin to cool. Right now, if the oceans cool, it, it changes the solubility of carbon dioxide. So it lowers the solubility, so carbon dioxide is outgassed. I mean, I'm sorry, is, is, um, is absorbed. When the oceans warm, carbon dioxide is outgassed. So you have this almost like the oceans breathing in and out of carbon dioxide, and that's going to be affected by changes in the amount of solar radiation. See, So it's a fair question to ask, well, when we look at increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, undoubtedly our consumption of fossil fuels is contributing to that. But also, almost just as certainly, the, the active sun that has now been overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly documented to have occurred throughout the 20th century would have caused uh, an oceanic warming. The ocean's response to that would be to outgas CO2. Mm. So what component in the atmosphere is oceanic outgassing? What is fossil fuel burning? We don't know, for example. We don't know precisely what, what, what that cutoff is. But we do know that if nature was not constantly replenishing carbon dioxide, it would quickly be sequestered into the oceans and turned into the limestone rock that forms the huge reservoir of of carbon dioxide in in Earth, you see. And what happens is if the sun cools and the oceans cool, the oceans start sucking out the atmospheric carbon dioxide, right? Pre-industrial estimate, pre-industrial concentrations of carbon dioxide about 280 parts per million present concentrations about 400 parts per million now even 400 parts per million is is very low compared to most of earth history right but what happens when you get down <clears throat> to ice age concentrations are down actually there looks like they could have dipped below 200 parts per million well that's the that's a dangerous threshold because below 200 parts per million plant photosynthesis begins to shut down jesus right yeah i think the founder of greenpeace said 180 everything dies at 180 that's it that's yeah we're we're in a we we were within 10 to 20 parts per million of that during the depth of the ice age to me ramping the co2 back up to four or five or six hundred parts per million really might be very beneficial and of course you can you can also see that you know we're you know all the projections if you look at the old projections from the 60s and 70s based upon uh, projected forest inventories and and inventories of plants in the biosphere they were all way way too low because nobody was taking account of the carbon dioxide fertilization effect and so now we've got evidence that that the earth is literally greening and that is being driven by the fact that 
the carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere have gone up and stimulated plant growth worldwide. It's for the same reason that, that commercial greenhouse growers will pump up the carbon dioxide to 1,000 to 1,200 parts per million because plants love it. Plants flourish under increased carbon dioxide, and they wilt and wither under diminished carbon dioxide. So, you know, I think... My opinion is is that, you know, we're looking at things like, and I'll go ahead and bring it up, you know, because if we take this assumption that the science is settled, that debate is over, we know what what's causing, quote-unquote, climate change, right? You take that to its logical, logical extension, what you end up with is the, basically the Green New Deal. This, this fantasy that, oh, the world is going to end in 12 years unless we have this radical transformation of the global economy and quit shut down the use of fossil fuels um we probably shouldn't get into talking about that tonight yeah no, we could yeah. probably save that for may when we've got like hours upon hours to just chat about all yeah. this stuff i mean it'd be fantastic sitting at the cabin and the campfire talking about the green new deal and how it's just a big sham but I mean, I did have a conversation with a friend of mine the other day about the commentary thing, and I don't know where he got this from and how mainstream it is, but he, he acted like all of, them, all of them have been spotted and are measured, like there's no risk. And I'm like, what? Yeah, we know where they all are. It's all good. Yeah. We got to pay it out. No, no, no. I don't know where areas. he got that from. I, I, I don't. I, I can't. Yeah, okay. I just want, I thought no. so. Yeah, that, it's, it's totally false, right? I mean, we don't know. I mean, we're just finding a lot of this stuff out now, right? Yeah. Well, you could say this. You could say, for example, if we're going to look into the, um, if we're going to try to get a census of, say, two-mile asteroids that could potentially um, collide with the Earth in the next um, hundred years, say. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a pretty good idea that, yeah, we've got those all counted. But the problem is, is that imagine that you've got a cluster of 10 or 100 Tunguska-sized objects. What was that again? What was that again? Well, okay, so like the Tunguska object of 1908, yeah, it was huh. about 150 feet in diameter. Oh, that's we, it. Have, yeah, yeah. we have no idea how much yeah. of that stuff is out there. Now imagine not just a single Tunguska, but in, in the neocatastrophist models, you may have a bombardment episode where you have anywhere from a few dozen to a few hundred Tunguska-type encounters, right? Now, that's really, see, the danger from the big things, like, say something equivalent to what took out the dinosaurs for our immediate future is, is minuscule. And if there was a six mile diameter asteroid orbiting the sun out there, making a solar Jovian orbit, we, we would know it. Yeah, absolutely. We would. You get down to below a thousand feet, you know, say anywhere between a hundred and a thousand feet. Yeah. There could be all kinds of stuff out there. We have no idea. Um, and in fact, it could be that there are kilometer sized objects still in the torrid stream that we haven't discovered yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good point. So, I mean, I don't know what your friend was referring to. No, um, that's a good point, though. I mean, it is a good way to separate it. They're still very destructive at, at uh, you know, a mile or, or less in diameter, yeah. You know, I hadn't yeah, I mean, considered those, had, those meteor showers. To, Go the, ahead, the object was, What's that? Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the Tunguska... When it exploded, it exploded. It was an atmospheric explosion about five miles up from the surface of the Earth, right? It exploded with a force of about equal to 15 million tons of TNT, 
which is about the same size as the biggest hydrogen bombs in the American arsenal at the height of the Cold War back in the 60s and, and early 70s, right? 15 megatons. The Soviet, the biggest Tsar Bomba, which was the largest Soviet um, hydrogen bomb ever tested, that came out at about 55 megatons, right? But basically, uh, uh, a hydrogen bomb of 15 megatons would annihilate any metropolitan area on Earth, right? Tunguska happened over old-growth taiga forest in northern Siberia in a very sparsely populated area, right? And, and, and it was for this reason it was almost two decades before any scientific observers were actually able to get to the site and, um, you know, begin for field studies, first-hand field studies, right? Imagine if you had a Tunguska today that happened over the east coast of the United States over the or over the west coast of the United States or over the Great Lakes region. You would have literally millions of casualties, right, just from that one. Now, in the, in the models of the British neocatastrophist, you might have um, bombardment episodes where you would have multiple Tunguska-like objects at, at one time, you see. Now, imagine – see, then what we're talking about is – could almost be likened to a, a thermonuclear war, yeah. minus the radiation, of course. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah. So to say that what well, we've mapped everything and we know, and that, no, no, that's just not the case. He must have some other agenda that he was, well, or he might have just been uh, talking. He might have been hearing a talking point mm-hmm. about larger ones. You know that we've identified all the large right. ones. So your point is still is still right. very valid. Yeah. So do you think? Yeah, someone- I mean, if he's talking about things like the 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 say the Cretaceous tertiary event that left the big crater in the Yucatan and, and largely contributed to the extinction of the dinosaurs, yes, then I would agree with them. Yeah, 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 okay. So can we look at all those meteor showers as being like the remnants of catastrophe? Because the next time I watch the torrid, I'll probably be thinking a little different. And Can you watch all the meteor showers and think, hey, it's like one of those the remnants of the dinosaur killer? And No, 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 I... I... Something from 65 million years ago, I don't. We wouldn't find any trace of that left. They would have been long ago swept up by the sun or the That's planets, scary. or just disintegrated into into dust. The things that we're looking at are probably all going to be from a few thousand years to a few tens of thousands of years ago. Um, you know, they wouldn't be that old. I'm not sure what the old the torrid meteor shower is actually considered to be one of the oldest, simply because. It's a very diffuse meteor stream. You know, the Geminids, Earth will cross the Geminids in a couple of days. A day, it's crossed the peak of the, of, the, of the stream. The Taurids take 10 to 12 days to fully cross. The stream has had more time to become diffused, which is, which is a function of, you know, how many times it's orbited the sun. So the Taurid stream is most likely one of the older meteor streams, and it's, it's estimated to have um, been produced by a comet that would have come in, like I said, 20 to 30,000 years ago. And I might add there that maybe it's very possible that, you know, what's called the late Wisconsin phase of the Great Ice Age, which was preceded by a 10,000-year period of, of considerably warmer climate that interrupted the, the longer Ice Age of 100,000 years, that came to a sudden end around 26,000 years ago. Hmm. Uh, with sudden cooling and re-expansion of the the North American glaciers and the Northern European glaciers. I think it's highly possible that that may have been a function of the influx of cosmic material associated with the progenitor comet, because 
the comet comes, let's say if the comet comes into the inner solar system roughly 26 or 27,000 years ago and begins to discharge large amounts of cosmic dust, and then the Earth is regularly sweeping through that dust um, as it orbits the sun, you, you could have a, a protracted period of global cooling. And that's kind of exactly what we did see around 25 to 26,000 hmm. years ago. Interesting. All right. Well, before we run out of too much time, we should. Uh, do you want to? Can we get back into the trip at all and talk oh, about yeah. more so things? Oh yeah. So this is like all. Oh, we'll dive yeah, into yeah, this stuff down over the trip. Yeah. We can. So I think we're gonna split it up. So we'll do. You know, we'll have the. We're gonna have the buses there. We're gonna have a couple. Well, not buses or vans. Big vans. We'll have a couple of vans running. Yep. We'll have breakfast. We got a, we have a catered event. We got uh, friends of the show, Keith and Gage, gonna help out with catering. And we got a giant um, estate uh, cabin on 122 acres in Pagosa Springs. We're going to be hanging out there. We're going to set up a space where Randall can do some lectures and some slideshow presentations as he sees fit um, over the course of the three weekends. So we're splitting up into three groups of 25. Two weekends in the week between. Just, yeah. yeah. So there's May 17th to 20th, May 20 or Shit, yeah, May, May 17th to 20th. Here, I got it. Yeah, May 17th to 20th, and then the 20th, really, again, to the 23rd, and then the 23rd to the 27th. Yeah, that's right. So we got a big, giant house rented, 10 bedrooms. All the information's on the website. Um, so anyway, basically, uh, Grandma and I will be down there in one of those bedrooms, and Randall Carlson will be, be there in a room, and we're going to be doing some presentations and some field trips to Mesa Verde and Chimney Rock and who knows where else we're going to, we're, we're finalizing the itinerary here over the next couple yep. of days and we'll post all that. Um, but we'll do some good eating. We may take a historic train ride. We may go soak in, soak in the sacred Springs. I'm going to bring, you know, I'm a percussionist from way back. So I'm going to be bringing some percussion instruments and we can have some, maybe a couple of late night around the bonfire wild drumming sessions um, just to, to raise the spirits of the dead. Um, Absolutely. I might just yeah. eat a bunch of edibles and then wander off. <laughs> um, Listen, yeah, man, actually, for people, yeah, for people that are coming, that if they have instruments, yeah, I'm, I'll be bringing a singing bowl probably because I want to go out and do some sky watching and look for some you know UFOs and stuff out there. Maybe take a couple groups out for a little CE5 action. Maybe a guitar out there. And then we're close to like other stuff. Like the Four Corners is only two hours away. Well, I think actually Graham. Yeah, no. I think Graham Hancock's doing an event not too far, only like a six-hour drive away on the sixteenth, right before we kick that off. So if anyone wants oh, to wow. try, I think it's in Sedona, oh, which yeah. is a little ways away. But I mean, if someone's flying into the area from a little ways away and they want to sneak in some. Graham Hancock before right. going to hang out with Randall Carlson for a couple of days. I mean, that might be a good good reason to go to that first weekend, the 17th to 20th, because you could turn that into a Graham Hancock drive for a day, hang out with Randall Carlson and Graham America for a couple of days. Graham will probably call some UFOs over. That's the plan. I mean, he's a, it's a ways away from, uh, Sedona's a ways away from Pagosa Springs for sure, but it'd be, I'm sure it would be a nice drive there. Um, oh, wonderful drive. Yeah. And then Dulcie's um, close by, I, I, too. I should mention, I, I should mention uh, well, go ahead, go ahead. If no, no, go ahead. Say something no, that you, I will mention. No, okay, well, I was just thinking Dulcie's also close by, which uh, is probably an interesting, interesting place in the San Luis Valley. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting things to do yeah. around there. 
Yeah, there, there's no shortage of, of interesting sites, geological, archaeological. I don't know about any paleontological sites that would be within easy access of there. Um, but, yeah, we would certainly have enough. What I was going to say is, is I am reading the pre-publication. Uh, Graham Hancock sent me his, his uh, book that's coming out in America in April. Uh, that's why he's going to be down in Sedona uh, during that time. He's doing his um, his book tour. But his book, America Before, I'm reading it right now. Um, man, it's it's an intense read. And, and some of the stuff that he has uncovered and putting in there is really phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, that book will be coming out in April. So I... I I'm about not quite halfway into it. It's you know Graham writes these massive tomes. This one has oh gosh what 578 pages, um, extensively footnoted and, and uh, referenced. But um, yeah, I won't get into the details of what he's getting into so far. But it's it's very important stuff, and it's definitely paradigm changing. Nice. And we'll and be talking about that. Stuff. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking about that because by that time you know, the book will have become available and maybe there will be people there who've actually read it and brought it. Um, but yeah, highly recommended. Um, yes, it's it's definitely, it builds upon his earlier work. It confirms what I've been doing, the idea of periodic catastrophes and the rise and fall of civilizations and the unknown story of what transpired in both North and South America um, in prehistoric times. And it is really phenomenal i gotta say um you know what's being revealed with lidar uh to have occurred in the amazonian jungles for example is almost like something out of science fiction but it's totally real <laughs> that's awesome yeah i can't yeah. i can't wait for that it's gonna be a great trip like i say we'll be it'll be intimate it'll be interactive we'll be able to speculate a little bit off the record and it's, it's gonna be a fun time yeah People are going to be sorry they missed it if they missed this one. I'm telling you, um, it's going to be great. We got some people in the chats ask, asking about the moon. Maybe we'll save the moon for the trip. Oh we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. Be all, we'll be able to, to talk about the moon and all that, all that great stuff. I'm telling you, May 17th, 20th. There's those three, three things. Head out back, check out badcomet.com. Um, and and get on board. We've had a couple of these meetups uh, for the last couple of years where we just meet a bunch of friends of the show and we chat for a weekend. And I mean, it's fantastic just chatting and with like-minded people. And it's really, that's part of the, the whole attraction for me to yeah. this whole thing. It's just that is fantastic. a big part. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and I think that's going to be one of the really valuable things that, that come out of this is there, there's a, there's a whole um, tribe of us people that are, very interested in these bigger questions and doing the research and sharing our knowledge and connecting with people that are really awakened to these possibilities and what it might mean for our own future by reconnecting with our past. But what I'm getting at is, is you know, the networking that, that can transpire in events like this um, yeah. Yeah. is extremely valuable. Yeah. That's right. Well, I mean, yeah. hey, that's how we made this friendship, right? You happened to come through Canada, and we hung out for a couple of days, and you know, here we are, three, four years later, putting on events together. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, the uh, the things that can spur out of something like this are are endless. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and and I think yeah. Th then there's plenty of reasons to be talking about about this because 
you know, all of these things that we're learning about our past, these revolutionary things that we're learning about our past, have tremendous implications for our future. And any scenarios that we concoct about what we should do and how we should plan our, our, our future on this planet that doesn't take account of these uh, of these these changes in our past um, is going to be doomed to fail. Yeah. So that's a big part of it, um, very much so. Yeah, definitely. But then the idea that, that, that what we're learning from looking at our ancestors is that, yes, there was very sophisticated knowledge in ancient times, and it was very much about people knowing how to live with the earth. Um, so, yeah, a lot of that that we're, we're beginning to discover. See, my, my take on it very briefly is that when we're looking at all this phenomena around the world, the, the megalithic phenomena, the monumental earthwork architecture, the temple building, um, the, the, all of these things are part of a forgotten, lost technological system. And to recover some element of that system has tremendous implications for our own future. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And these are the kind of conversations we can be having around the campfire. Yeah, exactly. Right on. Yeah, so check that out. Of course, do you remember that when you check out the website and you see the prices and they, they might look a little high, just remember that does include your uh, lodgings in a, in a giant uh, estate for the in for the event, and it does include your meals, and it does include uh, transportation around wherever we go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that transportation does include if you're at the Durango Airport, we'll get you. So yeah. you don't have to if you get to Durango, you don't have to rent a car or anything. We'll pick you up. We'll get you back in time for your flight. You're only on your own for supper, and the only reason we did that is because uh, too many stuffs going to pop up. You guys are going to. We noticed in the past that you know you need some time for everyone to split. Oh, up people and take do their off in little thing. groups yep. and stuff like that too, and yeah, that's totally cool. Yeah. Right. And then the other thing I want to mention is uh, if people aren't aren't familiar with the depth of your work and your knowledge and your presentations and your your lectures and all that, I mean, they can check out Sacred Geometry International as well. I mean, you talk about uh, sacred geometry yep. and and heavy metals and some esoteric stuff and the cathedral building and I mean it, and the Grail. I mean, it, it just it the the amount of you know fascinating topics you cover is is just mind blowing. So people can easily get more information from your website as well. Well, yeah, I was just going to say I wanted to give a shout-out to Cameron Wilshire at Sacred Geometry International for all the work he's been doing and a lot of great information over on that website. Um, and then also to Brad Young on uh, Geocosmic Rex and all the great work that he's been doing. Um, yeah, between those two websites, people should be able to get a, a good, generous dose of all the things that I've been doing, plus a lot of other people that are doing this kind of work. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Shout out to the sacred geometry people that are over here tonight. So, uh, yeah, big podcast day. We have Alex Jones and Joe Rogan and Ronald Carlson and Great America again. <laughs> I think this is your seventh appearance. So, uh, you know, we might hit the double digits here before 2020. I like it. Yeah. And you know what? I, I may, I may be end up going back on Joe's show before the May event. Oh, I actually nice. reached out in the, in the, right in the aftermath of that, uh, Discovery of the subglacial crater up in Greenland a few months ago, just before Christmas. The 11-mile one, yep. 
Yeah, yeah. He reached out and wanted to know if I was ready to come back out and discuss that. And at the time, I was undergoing some major or a series of major oral surgeries and couldn't talk too well. So I said, well, I need to finish up these these surgeries. This was a whole process that took almost about eight months to complete. So it's done now, but it, I had my last appointment actually last week. So everything is checking out. Um, everything's healed up good. But, yeah, when he reached out to me, I had my mouth wired up. So I wasn't a good good state for me to go out there. So it could be that I, I'm pretty sure Graham Hancock's going to be back on his show um, when he comes to town. For the um, new book, yeah, so for it, sure. It could, yeah. Be, yeah. it could be that I get back on there. And if I do, I'll certainly uh, plug the, the retreat. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that'd be good. Absolutely. Yeah. And send them, send all those Roganites over to the back catalog to mine out our Randall Carlson <laughs> yeah, nuggets. Yeah. I'll put a playlist together for yeah. them. Yeah. The okay. Introduction. Yeah. Well, to one Randall of these Carlson. days I'm going to get Joe out in the field. Cause you know, I, I just knowing Joe, he, he needs to get out in the field and spend a week seeing this stuff for himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That he, sounds he really fun. We'll, we'll start in Calgary. We'll rent a bus and we'll do the tour. It'll be great. Like it's a good, it's a great drive from here, man. You go down through. I'm I'm going to drive. I think I'm going to drive. I think I'm going to take a little. I'm going to try to take a little bit extra time. I think and drive all the way down. Will you drive people? Will you pick people up along the way? Yeah, maybe. If there's people that can afford a ticket but they can't afford the airfare or something like that, maybe we can carpool or something. There you go. If you're between Calgary and CAC, Pagosa (laughs) Springs, and you're like. You know, I might be able to get the money together for a ticket, but I can't afford the plane ticket. Hey, maybe ground pick you up. You just got to get your ass over the expressway. They'll pick you up there, and uh, it'll get weird for for a couple of hours or a couple of days. <laughs> it never and, gets weird. No, it's only awkward for the first, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> you guys will be fine. Anyhow, big thanks, Randall. We'll let you get back to your day, your night, and come back anytime. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure I'll be talking to you guys next Monday. Um, oh, yeah, we should mention I, that, actually. You know, if you guys, uh, yeah. if you do sign up and you get yourself on the guest list, we do a Monday night Zoom for all the people that are going to the event where we kind of catch up. Um, Graham and I and Randall aren't there every Monday, but uh, we're all there at least once or twice a month. So you pop on and you get to chat with Randall yourself and, and ask him about what's coming up at the event. And, and people have been loving that. So, so thanks for doing that. Randall. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, last time was, was good. Cause for the first time, really, we, we, I actually kind of did a slideshow Oh, nice. and we had a, some lessons in, in catastrophic geology. Wow. Um, we start recording. Yeah, you might've missed that. Graham. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, that's great. Yeah, just kind of like a foretaste of what, what we'll be doing out in uh, in uh, Pagosa Springs. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's once in a lifetime. Well, thank you, right, Randall. Buddy. You have yourself a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday, sir. Sounds good, guys. Have a good night. Okay, talk see to you, buddy. Then. Bye-bye. Well, now as a chat with one and only Randall, because I'm getting better at every, going over and yeah, hanging out. Yeah, every time we do that, I I don't know, man. I feel like it's clearer and clearer in my head, and I learn more every time we talk to him. Some of it overlaps with our past discussions, but there's always a little bit of new information in there. You know, new never ceases new to revelations amazing. and yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, of course, guys, head over to badcomment.com. Uh, I would recommend today, sooner or later, fifty percent gets you in the door. 
So, uh, you know, if you can just get 50% of a camp spot or something like that, we should also mention that if you do take a camp spot, um, you do still, you know, you're allowed in the house. You can also, you're yeah, in the yeah. house the whole time. Everybody's allowed in the, in the house. Tent. Everyone's allowed in the house. Everyone's allowed to use all the amenities of the house. You're just sleeping in the tent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big place that can hold. I a mean, lot if of it people. was me, I would take a tent over a bunk room. Really? Yeah, I think I prefer the privacy. Scary. Yeah, well, you get scared easy. Yeah, I don't get scared easy. It's like a we're we only one by myself. There's a private lake with a paddle boat. Really? Yeah. A private lake. Yeah. So you can also email Alan right away if you if you want to email Alan as well, who's organizing. Yeah, that's cac2019 at hdtravel.me. Again, that's badcomet.com. Fifty percent down. Get uh, get it down. There's about 45 spots left right now. Uh, the third weekend's... Ooh, that's not much, actually. No, the that's third like weekend's how... about gone. Like, the third weekend could be gone by the time this comes out. There was almost 100 people watching the live stream. By the time this comes out on Friday, another couple hundred people have watched the YouTube video. So, you know, it's probably worth getting on board. So I think there's three spots left in the last weekend. Uh 20-some spots left in, during the week, and same thing on the weekend. So head over there today, badcomet.com. has got pictures of the amenities and everything else. Like I said, Graham and I will be there as well uh, doing some other stuff. Graham will probably do some D&D. I might, I'm trying to line up. Actually, I haven't. I shouldn't say, but I'm trying to line up a tour of because uh, Colorado's uh, legal state. Everything's legal. Yeah, I was funny. I was just going to mention So we're looking at uh, maybe I'm talking to the guy, some of the local guys down there about trying to line up where maybe – a few of us can head over and do a tour of a of a grow up where they're doing some pressing, some concentrates, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's fine. And then, and then I was just going to mention if people want to stay sober and go out and look for UFOs, we can do like a sober. We can get high naturally by meditating in a circle, and we'll see some some craft flying around out there. Maybe even get a little bit of a closer visit. There you go. You, your first ever encounter. There you go. There you have it, folks. I'm telling you, check this shit out. Uh, also america.ca slash support because uh well because we couldn't do it without you and uh like i say we, we're not even quite at one percent so if we could get one out of a hundred of you to support the show we'd be pretty happy about that yeah help us get there that's like a little pat on the back then we'll shoot for two of a hundred well let's start with one let's start with i one. remember when we first started this percentage thing you were like four four percent we can oh. get four <laughs> i know some people are doing 10 or 11 yeah but they're doing a, you know, different model, yeah. Different models. Hey, yeah. maybe we got to switch. We don't want to split up our. Maybe we got to switch. We don't want to split up our apps in half. Man. We don't want. We don't want to do that. Oh. We love you guys. We just want you to love us back with a little support. Yeah. And check out the Black Budget. Black yeah. Budget feed's got lots of good content yeah. in it, so you do get access to the Black Budget Every, feed. It's just not the second half of all the episodes because we want to we want to keep all that together. Yeah. For yeah. now, rent some motherfucker. All right, guys. Gramerica.ca/support. Also, Gramerica.ca/news for the newsletter. Do all the stuff in there. There's a million things to do in there. There's a chats. America.ca slash chats. Got voicemail. Leave a voicemail. Oh, yeah. Or you can text 403-702-6083. You can put a one in front of that. Also email your stories and sightings and feedback, synchronicities, all that stuff. I mean, that's one of the best parts about doing this is involving all you guys and your stories and your uh, feedback and all that stuff. What were you going to say? Yeah, grandmacroamerica.com. Email them. Get it going. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Oh no, I think I've lost my way. 
Don't know if I'll ever make it back Look at me, I'm no longer solid I am abstract I blow on my survival whistle Point to the horizon Mercy me, it's so surprising My world is still intact I fell out of a hot air balloon and landed flat on a raccoon S.O.S. Help me soon S.O.S. Help me soon Gotta find shelter I feel like this caterpillar is mocking me in his cocoon who made the fire in Plato's cave? Made the fire in Plato's cave. Never thought that I'd be saved. Never thought that I'd be saved. Who made the fire in Plato's cave? Made the fire in Plato's cave. Never thought that I'd be saved. Never thought that I'd be saved till you came along, freed me, and loved me, and shared with me the beauty of your. I've lost my way, don't know if I'll ever make it back. Look at me, I'm no longer solid, I am abstract. I blow on my survival whistle, point to the horizon. Mercy me, it's so surprising, my world is still intact. Think I ate a poisonous mushroom Fell on my bottom Went boom boom My tummy hurts My head aches Where are my angels? For goodness sakes Did I pray to the wrong deity? At least let me die With dignity who made the fire in Plato's cave? Made the fire in Plato's cave. Never thought that I'd be saved. Never thought that I'd be saved. Who made the fire in Plato's cave? Made the fire in Plato's cave. Never thought that I'd be saved. Never thought that I'd be saved till you came along and freed me and loved me and shared with me the beauty of. You are my first
Plato's cave, made the fire in Plato's cave. Never thought that I'd be saved. Never thought that I'd be saved. Who made the fire in Plato's cave? Made the fire in Plato's cave. Never thought that I'd be saved. Never thought that I'd be saved till you came along and freed me and loved me, and shared with me the beauty of your.